Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the 2018 Circle of Film Awards in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? What is this? It's been a long year. Uh, A lot has happened, both in the film industry and outside of it. We're more concerned with the film industry in this episode, and the Oscars are right around the corner. This episode will be coming out Wednesday. The Oscars are on are, are Sunday night this weekend. A lot of changes and then reneged changes uh, have already taken place with regards to this year's Oscar ceremony. And amidst all of that, the Circle of Film Awards remain as steady and uh, straightforward as they always are. So, uh, before we get into this show and awards proper, uh, just a a small sort of... um, preamble this year at least as far as the recording of this this episode i have seen 405 films uh officially released in well according to letterboxd released in 2018 uh which include which doesn't include a handful of films that are nominated for oscars at this year's ceremony that were according to letterboxd 2017 films and didn't get qualifying Oscar runs until 2018. Something like The Wife was not eligible this year. Um, films like... that's That was the big one. First Reformed is another one that was a 2017 film. And... Yeah, so those are uh, not eligible. So stuff like that, if, you, if you're wondering where it is, uh, it's not there. Uh, for films like that, films that I don't see until far too late to actually qualify for the year that they're considered by my spreadsheet slash letterboxed, I have a separate uh, honorary award that I give out. I was originally going to do this every time, uh, every, every time I did a, a Circle of Film Award episode, but I decided that it didn't come up enough to make that meaningful. So I changed it to only apply to current year award episodes. So in three months when I do the 2011 and three months after that in 2010s, those won't have this. But the honorary oversights uh, will happen this year. There are some for this year. I've been toying with, you know, whether or not to uh, limit the number of honorary oversights in a year. And I think it's going to be any number between 0 and 3, whatever I deem worthy. And uh, I believe this year there will be 3. So uh, honoring some films that just didn't come out soon enough or that I missed is is the point. And I like being able to kind of go back and make sure I catch up on things and uh, fill in the gaps, as it were. Um, that being said, uh, this awards, you know, 
I, I was doing my final tinkering. A couple of little things changed when I final, when I when I went through and made sure the site had the nominations correct. It does now. If you want to check that out, um, I won't put up. I won't edit the web page to, sh- to reveal the winners until after the Oscars ceremony, uh, just to give people enough time to. I don't know. Just for my own sake to avoid. I don't know. You have to wait that long to see the winners in an easy cheat sort of way. Uh, like always, uh, there will be samples of all the original song contenders when that category comes up. And finally, the bumper between this preamble and the awards proper will be a mashup of the five original song nominees from this year. So without any further ado, thank you for taking the time to listen to this. I hope you enjoy this episode. Because 2018 had a lot of great films, and uh, I'm excited to talk about them. So here is the medley of 2018 original song nominees. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Because under the covers, one discovers that the king may be a crook. Chapter titles are like signs, and if you read between the lines... You'll find your first impression was mistook For a cover is nice, but a cover is... Is it sweet, sweet? Is it bland? Is it bland, bland? Tell Tell me me something, girl Are you happy in this modern world? Oh, do Welcome to the 2018 Circle of Film Awards. Today's episode will chronicle all 10 categories as well as every nominee with a brief uh, brief moment to talk about why they were nominated for this category and why they ended up in the position that they finished in. Uh, the pattern and structure for each category will be the name of the category, a list of the nominees in alphabetical order. Then I will proceed to talk about each nominee, starting with the lowest ranked of the nominees to the highest. Um, And that's within the category, not my personal ranking for all of them, except uh, in the picture category. The order of categories for tonight's episode, today's episode, this episode, we will start out with uh, special uh, special effects, followed by best score, followed by tactile effects, followed by screenplay, supporting performance, original song, uh, director, lead performance, best scene, 
and finally and ultimately best picture. That is the schedule. And uh, we're going to keep this to a nice clippy three hours like the Oscars. We'll see. We'll go. Here we go. The first category of the 2018 Circle of Film Awards is Best Special Effects. And the nominees are American Animals, Minding the Gap, Roma, Searching, and Spider-Man colon Into the Spider-Verse. Quick reminder, the special effects category is a combination of animation, visual effects, film editing, and cinematography. Okay. In the fifth slot for best special effects is Minding the Gap. Minding the Gap is a documentary. Uh, it does not get here, get this nomination on the back of its visual effects, nor its uh, animation, but the film editing and cinematography in Minding the Gap uh, are both stellar. Uh, I would elevate the film editing above any of the other elements in this category. Uh, the film is shot by... Oh... Bing Liu? Man, I don't want to make it say his name. Uh, use the wrong name. Uh, but it follows uh, three friends who grew up together who... Uh, just just became friends when they were younger and they are now maturing and, and starting to enter into adulthood and deal with the issues of life at that stage. And Bing Lu, I was right, uh, directs the film, edits the film. You know, he did so much to this movie, for this movie, to get it made. And it really comes across. You get the sense of his passion, his drive, and in the way the film is shot, you know, he, he, it just, one of the things that a documentary does, uh, when documentary works, when it's, when it's effective and when it, 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 it gives you what you want, it also knows what you're expecting. And when I, when I what I mean by that is, when you're presented with a piece of information, especially in a in a story that is as personal uh, to these men to these men as as mining the gap is, be, there's an inherent bias within any information that you're given from this particular subjects. You know, when one of the 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 subjects of this documentary is saying, you know, oh, this event went down this way. You know, I saw it. It happened this way, et cetera, et cetera. The first thing I'm thinking is, well, I, I want to know what the other person in that event thought. You know, what did the other person involved in that circumstance think of what we're talking about? And in Minding the Gap, without hesitation, every time I had that thought in my head, we cut to Bing Lu interviewing, interviewing that other person, uh, whether it was Zach's uh, girlfriend um, or, or, you know, talking to, uh, just, just getting, getting to the right person at the right time and making sure that the questions you have in your head make sense and then are followed by the answers or even, and maybe if not the answers, they're followed by the, the next logical step and progression in the film. And I, I really appreciated and enjoyed that. I think, Bing Liu has a great eye for editing, and the cinematography, not 
you know, uh, not not if this was just top five cinematography, I'd, it, Mining the Gap would not make that list. But the cinematography is is good. You know, he he gets these just really candid moments, and they're not filmed with any glorious, you know, I would print this out and put it up on my wall type of style, but they're just very raw and and very personable. He's up close, you know, whether he's in the backseat of a car, you know, whether he's turned his his mom's living room into a, a recording interview studio, you know, whether he's got... Um, you know, there are even moments where there's something very important happening in both the foreground and the background, which is not very common in in a documentary. And I, I thought that, that was a really well staged, um, or if it was staged, I don't know, uh, but a, a really well made film. And and the special effects, both the film editing and cinematography, are both uh, quite good. Number four is. Roma. Roma has gotten a ton of press this year. Uh, the last last I saw about it, uh, Netflix has spent twenty five million dollars on its ad campaign, which is just absurd. Obviously, this film did not even make that much at the box office, which we don't know how much it made anyway. But I'm not anywhere near as high on Roma as it seems a lot of critics and and pundits are. However, I cannot deny the exquisite cinematography that exists in this film. It is quite stunning and uh, well worth this nomination. Uh, outside of that, it also has really good film editing in it as well. I did feel the film was kind of slow, as I've heard is a, a pretty popular complaint about the movie, but... I think it was intended to be exactly as it was. You know, Afonso Coron did so much work on this film in front of, not in front of, but behind the camera as the director, you know, writing and, you know, shooting the film. And, and you know, he really did, you know, the work of like a dozen people to get this thing made. And that's incredibly commendable. And it really shows with the fine attention to detail in the cinematography. Yeah, you know, it, it, it reminded me almost not not in, in visual aesthetic of Wes Anderson, but in meticulousness of Wes Anderson. I felt every single moment was beautifully sculpted uh, to fit exactly what Corone was going for. And whether what he was going for was something you were interested or not, you know, that's that's a different conversation. But uh, without a doubt, he he achieved exactly what he wanted in this movie with Roma and uh even without enjoying the content, I can certainly enjoy the visual aesthetic that he presented. Uh, the cinematography is exceptional. The film editing is very good. Uh, again, I don't think it's quote unquote exceptional, but I do think it's it, it's in it's very deliberate and and very pointed. You know, we we do get this. There's some brilliant long takes, oneers in this movie, and and creating, you know, one of the things that kind of feels. There have been a plenty of great, you know, long takes in in film in the past, but sometimes when they happen, if your film isn't a Birdman, uh, if it's not, you know, 
a long take that's designed to 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 mean something beyond just oh look how great we all are in this movie because we can all do this in one take or or, or in one long take uh you know that it's it's still impressive whatever the circumstance but there are some instances where it just kind of feels out of place like well why did you shoot this particular scene without cutting it what does it add and i think the times that it happens in roma um i'm thinking of one time at the beach and and so on and so forth you know these are all very important and uh seemingly heavy moments that matter and the the style of filming them this way elevates the moment and i think that's that's kind of what you're hoping for whenever you put together a film that the stylistic choices elevate the content it's that simple so my number four is roma number three is searching searching uh did not get a single nomination at the oscars and i think that's a real a real shame uh, because the film editing in searching is it's my it's my it's it's my number two favorite film editing of the year searching uh is is unique not kind of unique it's a thriller film kind of a detective thriller film that is shot completely on screens so what everything you're watching is either on a movie or a or on a a tv screen or a computer screen or a phone screen or something and it gets it's it's very niche it's an aesthetic it's a very it's a huge conceit and choice that isn't going to work on everyone uh but i think even if it doesn't work on you i think the the amount of editing required to make this even feasible is astounding you know this wasn't simply you know screen capturing a, a, a computer they went back and inserted every window every button every icon into the frame of every shot or maybe not every shot but most shots at least the computer shots i i've seen behind the scenes effects and work on this and it's it's you know, it's jaw-dropping how agonizing and ex- painful and excruciating and time-consuming all of that must have been. And the finished product is seamless and looks like... It looks like they just screen-captured, you know, a Skype call or an iChat conversation or somebody Googling whatever. And so much more work went into it that, you know, it's a shame it got overlooked. Uh, from a cinematography perspective, uh, the film definitely has some strong shot positions and placements. You know, it has to because so much, all of its shots are from the screens. You know, in, some, in, in one particular sequence, everything is through hidden cameras. And I found that, you know, it, it's one, you know, you, you set up this situation where you have cameras that are showing one of the two characters at a time or in some cases both characters but you know they can't see each other and and so on 
and it, it just for for a film that it's like oh i'm just a a normal adult male who is setting up these hidden cameras in somebody else's house and to get to to make that happen in a way where oh yeah i totally buy that this is taking place and then to create these angles from it that are not only just like yeah i can see what i need to see but also add an element of oh man that is an interesting angle and direction and and foreground background contrast uh, I, I don't know it's just it's another level it's another step up from uh just this the most a more bland like oh i'm just gonna you know be first person perspective or you know this that and the other so i i love the editing and searching i think the cinematography is very good as well Moving on to number two. The runner-up for best special effects this year is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And naturally, as an animated film, it excels in the animation category, uh, animation aspect of this category. The film editing and cinematography... I've had I've listened and read, a com- read the conversation about animated films and cinematography a couple of times recently. And to a degree, I think there's an element of how can you shoot a shot in an animated film uh, when it's hand-drawn or computer-generated. You know, when you're looking at something like that's motion capture, or not motion capture, uh, uh, stop motion, it, it makes sense because it's still animated, but you are constructing the shot from a camera looking at a physical thing, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline. But when it's Spider-Man of the Spider-Verse, which is not, you know, it's not somebody with a camera filming the artist drawing it frame by frame. You know, it's, there, there, it's more to it than that. It's, it's all, you know, it's computers. It's, it's so much more. It does kind of feel like a completely different medium. Now, that being said, uh, the film editing is kind of where I would slot the quote-unquote cinematography elements of an animated film in this sense uh, in. Because, you know, the editing of of this film is, okay, shift this frame over 10 pixels. Shift, you know, turn, give us a, a angle the camera the viewpoint of the virtual camera down a little bit. Show us this shot from above. I want to see this from below. I want to be under his feet. I want to be in front of his face, behind his shoulder. Uh, you know, that is kind of more of an editing choice than it is a cinematography choice. Uh, although I'm sure there were, you know, um, corresponding cinematographer consultant type things involved. However, Obviously, the stellar standout for Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse is the animation. This movie looks amazing. It's 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 one of a kind. You know, we've never really seen animation like this before. It wholly embodies the i the the comic book aesthetic, and I just I kind of fell in love with it for that reason. It's stilted. Uh, in some senses, uh, when it needs to be, you know, it it cuts the frames into, you know, cuts you into separate frames uh, of the screen, like a comic book would. 
you get this speech bubbles and thought bubbles that appear as a comic book would. Uh, the the style and colors and contrast, you know, it does what a, a normal film would be, where it focuses in on one part of the screen, and then some of the edges around the edge, uh, some of the things around the edges get blurry, and it, it doesn't always. It it might take a little bit of of work and effort to kind of make sense of it after seeing so many conventionally animated films. And I, I totally understand that. But for me, I see I saw the film twice. It really just worked on all levels for me from an animation standpoint. It, it just the action, um, you know, not that not even to mention that you have to involve Spider Noir, who is a black and white character in an otherwise color movie. You have to involve uh, Penny Parker, who is an anime character and an otherwise comic book looking, more of a 2D, 3D animated film. You have Spider-Ham, who is Looney Tunes animated in an otherwise film. And it, it just, all these different styles of animation have to not only be true to the style that they are, but coexist in a world that is not necessarily an extension of their animation style. And Spider-Verse pulls that off, uh, flying colors, no hiccups, no no shortcomings. You know, it, it didn't feel like a film where they had to spend, where they spent 10 times t- as much money on, you know, th- one sequence as opposed to another. I didn't feel like there were any uh, uh, weak elements to this film as far as the animation goes and uh, I just it, it works and not only is the animation just of a high quality but the animation serves a purpose in the greater film as it's you know in the way that it's comic book-esque in the way that it's incorporating all these different animation styles it just all together just great just so great but it didn't win this category because the winner of Best Special Effects 2018 is American Animals. No animation in American Animals, but the film is my favorite film editing uh, of the year. Uh, edging out, searching in that respect. Uh, it also has very impressive cinematography. You will notice... Uh, before I get into American Animals proper, nothing that really has visual effects makes the list this year. The visual effects were, I don't know, it's more of a down year in that category. Not that there weren't films that had it, but even the ones that had good visual effects didn't really do a lot of the other things that great. Uh, You know, Avengers Infinity War had strong visual effects, Ready Player One, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, even Welcome to Marwin and, and Black Panther's visual effects were fine. Nothing really stood out to me. Um, and even if it did, it didn't do enough uh, in the rest of the, this this category to to warrant its inclusion. However, American Animals such an interesting film because it's half documentary half documentary like 
extremely elaborate documentary recreation. And Bart Layton, who directed the film, uh, directed one of my favorite documentaries, uh, The Imposter. And it's it's a similar format. This is, uh, you know, Imposter, definitely documentary. American Animals is, is, you know, 35, maybe 35% documentary, true documentary. And what's fascinating is you're presenting a film in that format it has to, you know, the average audience goer is not going to be very open to shifting genres so wildly. Uh, you know, it's akin to something like an animated documentary or, um, I don't know, like that's kind of, or, you know, integrating animation and live action into the same film, like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you know, that takes a lot of time, effort, patience, skill to, one, do, and two, do it so convincingly that the film flow isn't interrupted, and that the experience of the audience member is still enjoyable. And American Animals had a very tall order, very tall task. It's a type of film I'm not sure I've ever seen before. And it just home run off the you know, home run first at bat. You know, I, I, I was a big fan of Bart Layton purely for the imposter net, but, but now after seeing American animals, I think he's so, so talented. And I'm, I'm very curious to see what he comes up with next. And so the strength of, achieving this is pretty much all through the film editing and being able to cut and intersperse okay now we're going to talk to the real person now we're going to go back to you know Barry Keegan and 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 the rest of the the recreation actors and then we're going to you know cut over to this thing and we're going to have this real person tell us that they saw this event from this way and then we're going to show it that way and then we're going to have a different real person tell tell us that they saw the same event in a different fashion and we're going to show that as that method as well there are hypothetical scenes that are shown and cut and edited and 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 given to us there are moments where the recreation and the documentary side almost like overlap at a at a point it, it just, it's, I kind of think of it in the sense that it's like Vice, or, you know, it's like what Vice, what, what Adam McKay is doing with Vice and the big short lately is, you know, he is pushing the boundaries of what we are willing to allow in, in a, you know, in a biopic, in a drama, and they're they're both vice and big short are successful in their own set, own ways but american animals is looking at this from a very different perspective and i think you know it's just as successful i i it's a shame it did not get as much love or attention as it deserved but i i think it's quite incredible especially with film editing cinematography it it it's a film that looks great and pulls off a magic trick that, 
you know, I, I didn't know it was going to do when I went to see the movie. And then I got really concerned about what it was doing. And then it did it. And I had no qualms. I was very impressed with American Animals. So, again, top special effects films of the year. Starting at number five, working up Minding the Gap, Roma, Searching, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and American Animals. All right. Moving on to category the second, which is best original score. And the nominees are Marco Beltrami, A Quiet Place, Nicholas Bertel, If Beale Street Could Talk, Anna Meredith, Eighth Grade, Maug, Burning, and Colin Stetson, Hereditary. I think I say this every year, but score is generally not... This is the category I am the least qualified to rank, but I do it anyway. Uh, So, starting with number five, we have Colin Stetson for Hereditary. Now, Hereditary is two-thirds drama, one-third horror... I don't like the horror element of the film, but I love the drama element of the film. And what is fascinating is it has such elevated and over-the-top performances if it were just a strict drama. And until the real horror elements start to manifest, I think there was an op- there was a chance and, and a fear, perhaps, that this film would end up looking and, and feeling just awkward because of the exaggerated performances, because of the exaggerated tone. But through Ari, uh, Ari Aster's careful direction and the nuance in the performances that helps ground them as much as they need to be, just as much as they need to be, on top of, and I think the most important element of, of making this fit, the, the, the atmosphere, the score keeps us from kind of approaching the film and thinking that, you know, it does, you know, if it is just a drama, it's too elevated, it's too over the top, it's, you know, this does not work as a drama, as opposed to... Um, when we get to the horror parts of the movie, oh, now the score, you know, previously the score fit because the performances were elevated. Now the score fits because the story has changed and because the the genre has changed. And the score makes that transition with us and keeps, you know, whether or not you like that part of the movie, keeps everything co- cohesive. So I think it's a very good score, uh, and and that's why it made the list. Number four is Nicholas Bertel's If Beale Street Could Talk. I've heard a lot of people praise this score, uh, people saying that they listen to it on repeat and things like that. I've never listened to a score uh, on its own. 
at least not with the intention of just listening to it. I've I've done that for you know the with the intention of of finding music to to underlay something else, but never just for the enjoyment of it. And uh, I don't know. I I just I don't quite get that sort of attachment to things like a score. Now, if Beale Street could talk, Nicholas Bertel is a fantastic composer, and if Beale Street could talk does sound pretty incredible. It lilts and lifts when the characters need it to. This is a film that has a lot of high-energy scenes, but then a lot of low-energy scenes. And the score is the only thing that... The score and the editing kind of work together to try to smooth out the the contrast between those two styles and I think for me the score does a much better job of of achieving that just giving us this you know we go from these incredibly long shots of just a character's face to uh, this this rabid conversation between two two women who are you know both incredibly passionate about the thing they're talking about. Then we slip back into a long, drawn-out person in front of a mirror, and then we go back into, you know, then we have two families, you know, yelling at each other, fighting and arguing, and, you know, making that sh- those those adjustments and, and changes from one moment to the next, uh, it's, it's a lot of pressure on a score, and Brittel is up to that challenge, and he serves that function not just acceptably but exceptionally in my opinion number three is Maug's burning score now i don't know Maug. i've never heard that name before i don't know if i'm guessing it's like a stage name or something you know nicholas bertel i i that's a name i'm familiar with i'd heard it before uh and Colin Stetson from Hereditary, I've heard before. None of these top three names have I have I really come across in my time doing this. Maug does in Burning, and I would point I would point to the sunset dance scene uh, towards the middle of the film, maybe a little after the middle, as just just if there was a score this year that I was going to spend time and listen to on its own, it's probably this one. And the way it, it's integrated into the film, the way it it has to, you know, I talked about how Stetson in Hereditary had to give us this transition between genres. In Burning, what Maug has to kind of hide the genre at times and convince us that you know oh we're just this is like a romance drama oh this is like a you know love triangle scene this is this this is that and then kind of retroactively when we get to the final act of the film convince us that no 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 this whole time it's been a thriller this whole time it's been uh you know a noir type of thriller movie and I've been lulling you into this sense of complacency, and I've been, you know, trying to get, give you these little details along the way 
in the score to kind of show you, oh, this is really important. Don't forget about this later. This is really important. Don't forget about this later. And yet everything is really important. Don't forget about anything until later. And I don't know, it's just it it's working on so many levels. And on top of that, it's just ethereal when the film takes a pause to let um I can't think of her character's name, uh, but let her just dance in the sunset and and slowly kind of unravel in herself. Uh, there's just there's a lot going on, and for a film that is relatively slowly paced, it requires a, some finesse, a lot of finesse to pull this off, and Maug Maug does it. So that is Burning Maug, my number three. Runner-up, best original score, 2018, is 8th grade's Anna Meredith. Anna Meredith. This score is definitely the odd man out of the five nominees. It is uh, a little over the top, a little boisterous, a little loud. You know, when I first watched the film, it did kind of feel uh, unpolished. And it was a little jarring. But the second time I watched it, uh, it, 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 I mean, it felt all those things again. But then it also on top of that felt, but yeah, that works. But yeah, that makes sense. But of course it would be jarring because our character feels jarred. Our character feels awkward and out of place. Our character, etc., etc. You know, this is a, you know, this... There's not as much nuance, in my opinion, in this in the score for eighth grade, but on the other side of it, it is so pitch perfect relative to what is happening on the screen in you know giving you the ability to connect with this girl who is half your age, who you know you weren't in eighth grade and you know if you haven't been in eighth grade for 10, 20, 30 years, it's not always easy to get back into that mindset. But I think Anna Meredith's score, uh, on top of Elsie Fisher's performance, are what give you the tools to find your way back into that feeling. Find your way back into that emotion uh, and, and time of your life, which is so, so challenging to to achieve and I'm I'm so impressed by how well it's ultimately orchestrated. Uh, I think Anna Meredith achieves something pretty Im- impressive and you know even even if you're not a, f- a woman, even if you're you're not a 13-year-old a, a girl, even if you're not even if you went to a private school, even if you know you were a completely different social status than um, than Elsie Fisher, you, you you still in my through the score. I think you can still connect and and feel the way she feels when she's about to enter the pool party, when she's confronting another classmate, when she's doing this and that and the other, when she's talking to her dad, when she's talking to you know, her friend, or all of this stuff, I think, just comes to fruition and comes bubbling to the surface. And uh, I, I was, I, I loved it so much. 
that is the runner-up, which means the winner of Best Original Score <clears throat> is A Quiet Place and Marco Beltrami. Marco Beltrami. Quiet Place is, uh, you know, it's a film that revolves around sound. And I, I love how I read, an, I, I read a quote from a few weeks ago, maybe a week ago or so, that said that Beltrami had a very difficult task because he didn't need to create an atmosphere for a film that was silent, right? He had to create one that was quiet. And those are very distinct, diff- distinctly different atmospheres. Whether you're, you know, some, you know, you're sitting in a room and you're not making a sound. It's quiet, but it's not silent. You can hear a faint buzzing, perhaps maybe a car going by in the distance outside, a flutter of you know the leaves and the wind. Um, if you have an electronic device, it might be humming a little bit. You can kind of feel your chest rising and breathing, the air coming in and out of your mouth or nose. Um, you know, maybe even the slightest little hint of a squishing sound when you blink. You know, all these little tiny, tiny, tiny elements that go into creating this not silent, but quiet atmosphere. And successfully achieving that and successfully creating a, a world and can composing music for a world where everything is whispers, everything is, you know, you can't have any noise, you can't make loud, sudden, jerking motions, you can't, you know, you have to walk barefoot on sand you have to you know you can't walk through the woods because you'll snap on a twig and and that's just too loud and all of that is is incredibly tough and difficult to uh, achieve in in composing the score of a film and making your score uh, kind of line up with a, a film like this it it's not easy and it requires a lot of paying attention and and attention to detail and fine tuning uh you know whether it's just the peaceful calm you know trying to be quiet but then you do have those moments of loud uh you know oh we made a mistake there's got to be some danger there's danger right around the corner oh, I, I i see this thing coming there's a monster you're trapped uh, you're under a waterfall, you know, all these different things uh, that that kind of break through that that facade. And I, I just think the Beltrami's score captures all of that. And I think this is the film it has this sort of conceit, this gimmick to it, and making it so that the gimmick isn't everything making it so that the gimmick isn't just a gimmick it's it's just 
you feel like you're in this world and it makes sense and it's it's how it is, you know, that's tough. And I think Beltrami does a great job of of sort of uh, complementing that idea in a way that makes it far more palatable for for an audience. So best original score, Marco Beltrami, A Quiet Place, top five, going back again, you have uh, Colin Stetson for Hereditary, Nicholas Bertel for If Beale Street Could Talk, Malg for Burning, Anna Meredith for Eighth Grade, and Marco Beltrami for A Quiet Place. Our third category today is tactile effects. Tactile effects. And the nominees are Black Panther, The Favorite, First Man, Mary Poppins Returns, and Suspiria. So, tactile effects and special effects, no crossover. None at all. (laughs) And, uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, there is no crossover in the first three categories (laughs) that I've done this this so far, uh, which is pretty astounding. Uh, Very few lot of films that got a single nomination this year and more on that uh, in a minute at the end actually however starting with number three for tactile effect or number five for tactile effects we are it with first man first man so refresher tactile effects refers to a combination of costume design makeup and hairstyling production design and sound First man, great sound, great production design, and then uh, it has the makeup, it has hairstyling, it has costume design, but those aren't really that exceptional. Production design is very solid for first man. Um, it would probably be on the outside looking in of top five production design for me. But the sound, you know, first man, it gets into this category on the back of its sound, and a, a film that narrowly missed this nomination is A Quiet Place. You know, I talked about how it is so much about sound, and it's true. But I think what it, the, and it might even, it potentially has better sound than First Man, but I think the the added costume, makeup, production design qualities uh, elevated First Man just enough over A Quiet Place to steal this slot First man, you know, dealing with space travel up in space on the moon, uh, inside the cockpit of a rocket ship. So many, you know, just just loud, raucous, uh, uh, eardrum pounding moments uh, that that have to be crisply and and cleanly mixed. It it really did take. Uh, it, what felt like a Herculean effort to to make this all not blow out your eardrums and and not leave you deaf walking out of this theater. It was very impressive and and very immersive uh, in in terms of the sound. The production design as well is quite strong and very good. I, I think it's you know setting up uh, the space station and and just being in uh, the not space station. Uh, just the production of the moon, the production of the the 
um, of NASA and even looking at something like the the town that uh, Armstrong lived in, all these things were were just brilliant touches. I never felt like I wasn't exactly where uh, Damien Chazelle wanted to put me. I never felt like I was not on the moon or I was not in a rocket ship. I was not in NASA's headquarters. I was not, you know, just in a nice little house that definitely existed within, you know, viewing distance of, you know, Cape Canaveral or whatever it was, you know, all these types of things. And, and that's a huge credit to the production design, you know, giving us this stasis and, and placement that uh, it, it just, it works. It works on, on all those levels. Uh, so that's number five, first man. Number four is uh, Mary Poppins Returns. Tactile effects. Costumes, I think the costumes of Mary Poppins Returns are quite good. Uh, all the outfits that Emily Blunt wears, uh, even early moments with the kids, like everything under the water, the the bathing uh, or the, the bathing suits, I guess they would be, shower outfits, and then the red, the the, the red dress that. Emily Blunt wears the blue one from the beginning. You know, just it all fits the times. You know, they give Mary Poppins outfits that definitely stand out and definitely um, set her apart, but still manage to feel of the time and, and feel at home in the period. Even, you know, looking at Lin-Manuel Miranda and the clothes that he wears as well as like the entirety of all the light uh what lighties no um what are they called um leary the learys you also have meryl streep and everything and then the costumes that they wear in the animated sequence is just amazing I loved that animated sequence. I think they did such a great job of incorporating animation and live action together. Watching, you know, those clothes that they wear that had an animated feel to them, uh, but, you know, were clearly live action and, and, and maybe even altered. I'm not sure. I love that. I thought that was a great job. Makeup and hairstyling, good. Uh, not exceptional, but definitely good. Production design, I love the production design of Mary Poppins Returns. And the sound, the sound is very good too, especially that animate, you know, live action animated hybrid sequence. Every movement with that porcelain sound underneath their feet, it all served to like make that world feel so unique and feel so original, but also feel real and, and actualized which is surprising because it's not a world that anyone's ever been in or everyone probably ever could be in. So I pretty much across the board, none of these elements are, you know, the best of the year, but I think Mary Poppins does a good job in all of them and is why 
has earned this spot. That's why it's earned this nomination. Number three, number three is Suspiria. I don't think a lot of people saw this uh, outside of, you know, kind of cinephiles and, and maybe some horror fans. But Suspiria is an interesting movie. It's it's not outstanding to me. It's not make it's not you know it's not a best picture nominee, but it, it's definitely fascinating and and manages to be highly entertaining despite you know being a little long and uh, being a little out of the box as they say costumes are fascinating and gorgeous the the red rope outfit i i love that i thought that was incredibly creative and unique you know something i've never seen before the makeup and hairstyling throughout the film are incredible, uh, especially on the multi-characters, the many characters that Tilda Swinton plays. The production design of the Dance Academy and how that all fits together I thought was very good. Uh, and the sound, you know, the sound of the early scene where Dakota Johnson is dancing without any music and you can just hear you know, the sound of her, her fists her feet slamming against the wooden floor. You know, a lot of these elements really stuck out to me. I think uh, it's kind of similar to Mary Poppins Returns in that this is a film that excels in all these elements, all these categories. I think it does a little bit better in terms of costumes than Mary Poppins does. I think a little, little bit better than in production design. Uh, and, and that's kind of what pushes it above into this third slot. Uh, so... So Spiria, definitely a movie that's not for everyone, but I think there's something to appreciate within it, uh, even if the story, even if the type of film that it is, isn't necessarily uh, conducive to, to who you are and, and the, the viewer. So, moving on to number two, the runner-up for best tactile effects is Black Panther. This Man, picking the winner in this category was excruciating. I was multiple times really wanted to just call it a draw between Favorite and Black Panther. I think both films are incredibly, incredibly exceptional at, at tactile effects. Costumes, makeup and hairstyling, production design, sound. Uh, sound is probably the weakest, is, is definitely the weakest element for both films. But they're both exceptional costumes, exceptional makeup and hairstyling, exceptional production design, and ultimately, you know, it came down to um, comparing the two films and, you know, which one won out more often than not, and I think, so, so going down the order, you start out with costume design, I, I both films do so well with costume design, and I think, you know, when you're comparing favorites, uh, Rachel Weiss, all Rachel Weiss's outfits and Olivia Coleman's outfits, Emma Stone's clothing, all the men in the in the government side of things, uh, you know, the period piece, a lot of period pieces do this really well. Favorite is is not an exception to that. Then you're looking at Black Panther, you've got all the different colors, you know, when they're all arranged on that cliff face. Oh my goodness, what a shot that was. I 
have been assuming, assuming uh, this whole time that Black, uh, Black Panther had no costume competition and the favorite proved to be worthy, but I do think I, I end up siding with Black Panther in far, as far as costume design goes. Makeup and hairstyling, I think, edges back toward the favorite. You know, it has far better hair work, in my opinion, though, you know, Black Panther has a lot of great prosthetic work, uh, especially on some of the big um, piercings and stuff like that. Like, a lot of that was prosthetics. And, it, again, both are very, very, very good at this, but I do think the favorite takes it with such, you know, just the three women and, and all the varieties of hair they have to um, create and, and, and design. It just looks outstanding. And then with sound, again, I think sound is the lesser of the four for both films. I would say Black Panther has slightly better sound, but I think because sound is not quite as strong across the board, I would um, almost not even consider it as like a tie-breaking vote, which leaves us with production design. And now, I do think that both films have very good production design, but the one thing that pushes it over the top for me, I thought was going to end up being the visual effects element in Black Panther, but might actually be the fact that the favorite didn't actually like didn't really design the castle like they just used a castle and i mean it's a great castle it looks amazing it, it serves every possible function that the film could desire but they didn't they didn't design the castle they designed the layouts and and like the the fixtures and the candles and all those other things and and the outside the you know the gardens and stuff and it's all great. It looks wonderful. But I do think that Black Panther and creating Wakanda and, and the way Wakanda looks and, you know, when you go up to M'Baku's place, uh, his his room and, and the uh, the flower room in uh, Wakanda's main castle and, and all this stuff, all these things, I think, just push it over the top for me. So you end up with the favorite taking the runner-up slot in tactile effects so close so close in this category uh but ultimately missing out by just a single spot and that makes black panther best tactile effects 2018 black panther and i'm very pleased very pleased to to get give black panther that award um very impressed um uniformly by all the, all these elements uh, so, Black Panther takes this one. Black Panther takes tactile effects. Moving on to category number four. We have Best Screenplay. So, this combines adapted and original, as it generally will. Uh, and the nominees are Bo Burnham for 8th grade. Deborah Davis, Tony McNamara for The Favorite. Jennifer Fox for The Tale. Phil Lord, Rodney Rothman, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And Audrey Wells, The Hate You Give. Whew. 
Coming in at number five is Jennifer Fox's The Tale. The Tale is, you know, I saw this one fairly early in the year. Uh, a lot, you know, it, it, it had a lot of nominations when I first watched it. And the only one, the only one that hung around to the end is the screenplay for Jennifer Fox. I think the film, it's a great movie, very great movie. And I think the linchpin of it all is the screenplay. It kind of plays out in a similar fashion to, you know, in American Animals, where you have the present, you have, you know, these uh, Laura Dern looking back on times when she was younger, uh, except it's all staged, it's all fiction, uh, acted and, and dramatized instead of part of it being documentary. And the way that the film, you know, Jennifer Fox wrote and directed the film, she it's about her, and I think that adds this extra wrinkle to the film where the fact that she's able to write this character it doesn't feel like the movie was made from her perspective. It doesn't feel, or not, or not from her perspective, but it doesn't feel like a like she's she's covering things up. It doesn't feel like she's hiding the truth, hiding the reality of the situation. You know, we feel it. It feels raw. It feels like this could have been a completely fictional story, or you know, completely something that she discovered in a book somewhere. But it's her life. It's her trying to come to terms with what happened. And what I loved that the screenplay did was it has these moments where the character characters in the past interact with characters in the present and kind of pose questions to each other. And I thought that was so brilliant um, from a writing standpoint to help give us more context and more understanding into who these characters are and you know it's not something you could ever possibly do but I'm sure you know you look back on things you've said look back on things you wrote look back on conversations you had and and things you did and you kind of think to yourself man why did I do that what what was going through my head and this movie tries to put us in a position where we see the truth of that we're like this is what was going on this is why I did that thing you know, you should know you were there. You're me. And and I liked that context. I thought that was a really well-made um, conceit. And, and it really worked for me. Number four is Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara for The Favorite. Uh, the Favorite, having just one tactile effects, uh, does not quite get there for screenplay, but Man, it is a caustically funny film that the wit is is incredibly high. The the dialogue ex, is excel, excellent. The dialogue is brilliant. And if I if I could, you know, man, if I if I could spend more time just having these characters interact with each other, I I I would. I would love to see more of it. But what we get is the, the the segmented story, and it's broken up into chapters when you watch the film, as these three women, it's not like the three women are doing battle for a thing, but two women are, are kind of at odds with each other, trying to get Olivia Coleman's favor. And that's not a very, I don't know, I mean, I guess that's definitely a cinematic 
idea, but it, it's something that doesn't lend itself well to being a big, boisterous um, type of event. And yet the writing elevates everything. It, it heightens every aspect of the film, whether it's you know simply uh, 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 an inner musing from Emma Stone as she's you know passively uh, engaging in in sexual relations with a character, or uh, it's it's like a conversation b- uh, between Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weisz about makeup looking making her look like a raccoon and all of that sort of culminates in this off-brand humor that you don't find in other films and Yorgos Lanthimos's movies are are very much fraught with with this style and he is perfect with it great at it and uh he he gets an, a, a brilliant screenplay off of the team of Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. Number three is Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, Phil Lord, Rodney Rothman. And this is, a, you know, it's a superhero movie. It's a comic book movie and it's animated. And the dialogue, yeah, you know, can it really compete with the favorite Maybe not as as witty as the favorite is, but what ends up happening is this takes the traditional comic book superhero story and rewrites it in a way that does what I think every comic book movie has tried to do, and that is it gets it gets its cake, eats it too. It it's able to incorporate a plethora of characters, you know, almost Avengers level cast and still makes it a, a a personal story about Miles and his struggle, but doesn't forsake the characters around him. He, they all get the opportunity to shine. They all get the opportunity to excel and, and fail. And, you know, we get these emotional beats with Miles, with Gwen, with Peter, with other Peter, with with Fisk, uh, with with Kingpin, with with um, uh, even even uh, Aunt May. You know, we have all these brilliant moments. You know, between Miles and his dad, Miles and his uncle, Miles and his mom, and and they're all just. You know, it, it's a film that. You know, you look at it, it's like, all right, look, there's six heroes, there's six villains, you know, and it's like, this is the start of this franchise. And you wonder, how could this possibly ever work? How could they possibly, you know, balance this act? And (laughs) it's, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. But it is so, so close to it. It is so well made and so well written that you do end up growing attached to Jake Johnson as as alternate universe Peter Parker. You grow attached to Spider-Noir, who gets, you know, five, six, seven lines in the movie. You grow attached to Spider-Ham, to, uh, to, to, to Gwen, to Miles, to Penny, and, and some of, the, yeah, you know, the villains aren't fleshed out necessarily outside of Kingpin and, and Prowler and um doc doc ock but 
you know, even even getting three villains in a movie that feel like real characters that you feel some connection to, even if it's a negative one, is is not easy this time, this day and age. The the film just knows how to bring its its principal character of Miles from nothing into something something more than who he is he's he's an everyday kid he he has his own troubles his own problems and then compound that with now i'm a spider-man and that's not something we haven't seen before but this film for the first time for the first time in all the times i've seen spider-man's character finally felt like a movie that was really pounding home advocating for and you know uh, calling it shot and and pulling it off, uh, convincing me, the viewer, that you know anyone can be Spider-Man. They tried it with Tobey Maguire. They tried it with Andrew Garfield. They kind of tried it with with Tom Holland, and I don't think any of them succeeded in this theme. This is what Spider-Man is all about. Anyone can be Spider-Man, and this is the first movie, Spider-Man movie, that really made that real, and. A lot of that is the writing. The runner-up for best screenplay is The Hate You Give from Audrey Wells. The Hate You Give is um, one of many films to come out in the last year or two to deal with uh, police shooting. You know, there's The Hate You Give. Blind Spotting did it. And it's it's a tough tough film to categorize because i do think that there are moments in the screenplay where it does become you know it knocks you over the head you know black klansman for all of its its impressive talents black klansman does the same thing uh, Spike Lee just just goes right for the jugular talking about race and race relations in that movie. And there are definitely moments in Hate You Give that do the same thing. There's a fantastic... I, I think it's a great scene where Amanda Stenberg wields a hairbrush and intimidates and and terrorizes this former friend of hers in front of all these other students at her school. And it's it's chilling. It's really chilling of a moment. Because on the one hand, yeah, it's way too dramatic. It's way over the top. You know, and you're wondering, you know, how necessary is this moment? How much does this need to happen? You know, and, and the point being that Because she's not white, because she is black, because, you know, she she looks a different way. Simply holding something that for half of a fraction of a second under bad lighting and at a bad angle and... Uh, in the you know in in the worst possible inconvenient circumstance could even be considered 
uh, a weapon, a gun, is, is, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I love the juxtaposition of this moment with the actual shooting. Because it just it just it works so well for me. That coupled with um, sort of chronicling um, Amanda Stenberg's character as she become she grows from this character who tries to avoid being herself so that she can fit in with two separate sides of of her of of society. To ultimately being, to bringing those two sides together and, and taking the best of herself from both of them and realizing who she can be and, and the potential she has, I think is just a wonderful uh, evolution to her character and, and actualization and realization for someone at her age, someone you know who is in high school, who has so much to think about and so much to worry about and so much to consider and, and think toward the future about what, what's changing and, and happening to them and their life and everything around them. And she does what she's able to, what the, what the screenplay is able to do and the writing is able to do is get us from that point to the end of the movie where she's not, doesn't have it all together, but she's trying to bring all of all of these sides of her life, all of these facets into one. And I think it's it's really effective. And that means that best screenplay 2018 uh, goes to winner of the Writers Guild Award for Best Original Screenplay, Eighth Grade, Bo Burnham, Best Screenplay, uh, following in the footsteps of Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Eighth grade, you know, I, I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. And the writing is just, whether it's a just a, a perfectly harmless conversation from, from a, between Josh Hamilton and Elsie Fisher, where he comes home. He finds her with a banana. He's like, I don't think you like bananas. She's like, I love bananas. And she eats it and she clearly doesn't like the banana. And he's like, you don't you don't have to eat it. And she throws the banana at him and stalks off. Uh, you know, it's 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 a just boiling it down to those elements, it's a pretty inconsequential scene. Obviously, if you've seen the movie, you know there's a lot more going on beneath the surface. It's Showing not only the relationship that the parent that the dad and daughter have, but Elsie Fisher, you know, a lot going on with her at school. She's trying to learn how to do something that she probably and that she's definitely not ready to do, uh, given who she is and and what she's um, and and how how poorly she's addressing this this emotion that she has. But, you know, something that simple, written so well that it, it comes across as just, you know, kind of like, like that's the kind of moment where 
you know, as as Josh Hamilton, I would look back and like, man, you remember when you, you know, ate that banana? You know, like I would bring that up all the time if I were that dad. And it it it's the way that eighth grade looks at all these different moments and looks at all these different seconds and and minutes in in her life and how you know she does feel out of place at the pool party in school at the mall she she's struggling you know the the one of the most terrifying scenes of the year was in eighth grade during in the car on the way home from the mall and it's it's a it's it's a tension-filled moment that you know you you feel it coming you you can sense it coming as it progresses and even before it truly starts you can kind of feel where this situation is headed and that is on the strength of the writing and then despite knowing where the scene is going it still doesn't actually for me at least it still didn't go exactly as i expected it to it took some swerves. It, it veered a little out of the out of the way of, of where I think uh, most people would expect it to go, and I thought I just found that to be so refreshing of of a sequence to to give us this moment. Obviously, you know, you know, knowing that the viewers are not going to be super excited to watch what's happening. But to both give us, to reward us uh, for watching it and, and by saying like, look, like it's not as bad as you thought it was going to be, but also to write it in such a style where it's like, but it's still horrifying. It's still terrifying. And I, I really liked the sensitivity in that moment. The, I don't know, just like the, I, I would you know, I, I would put up the dialogue in, in eighth grade against anything in the favorite as far as, like, quality of writing. The entire conversation between Josh Hamilton and Elsie Fisher at the fireside was was beautifully, beautifully written. Um, yeah, I, I just, it's great. I love it so much. So, top five screenplays. Five to one. Uh, we have... The Tale, Jennifer Fox. We have Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara for The Favorite. Phil Lord and Rodney Rothman for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Audrey Wells for The Hate You Give. And Bo Burnham for 8th Grade. We come now to the 5th category of the evening, of the day, of the episode. Category number 5 is Supporting Actor. Supporting, or supporting Performance. And this is likely going to be the last year where the acting categories that I uh, that I that I do and that I award have ten nominees. I've been thinking about this, and ultimately, I decided that what has to happen is that either all categories get the same number of nominees, being five, or all categories get the same number of nominees, being ten, and. I think it makes more sense to reduce to five. This, and I have to take I have to take a look at this and make sure I, and really consider what I want to do with this, because 
it might end up in increasing the number of categories, uh, but we'll see. Uh, you know, that's not um, not set in stone. I'm still working this out, but I am 100% all categories will have the same nominees after this episode. But for now, we do have 10 nominees for Best Supporting Performance. And for this, and for 2018, those nominees are Elizabeth Debicki, Widows, Richard E. Grant, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Josh Hamilton, 8th Grade, Russell Hornsby, The Hate You Give, Nicholas Holt, The Favorite, Michael B. Jordan, Black Panther, Daniel Kaluuya, Widows, Michael Shannon, What They Had, Rachel Weisz, The Favorite, and Stephen Yin, Burning. And starting out with number 10 will be Michael Shannon for What They Had, perhaps the least uh, recognizable film on this list. Uh, what, the ha- what They Had is one of the last films I watched uh, before doing this ceremony or for doing this episode. And Michael Shannon is, he's just, he's just so, so competently strong in this film. He plays um, a brother who is taking care of uh, the parents who, uh, particularly the mom who is having some some rough memory issues and, and stuff. And the parents need She's like some, uh, you know, walk, walking out, walking out of the house in her sleep, and so on. And he's been taking care of them for a while. And uh, his sister enters the is the main character. I forget who plays her, but she is. Is it Edie Falco? She she's the main character. She's returning home to kind of help deal with this. She has like the power of attorney and and all that kind of stuff. And. Um, which Michael Shannon resents because he's the one that's caring for them. He's the one that's there. He's the one, you know. And so he has this great arc, I think, where he, he kind of just doesn't give a shit anymore. He's blunt. He's borderline aggressive. And uh, it does yield some pretty tension-filled and powerful moments. And I think the film is very well acted across the board. It's a great cast. But... Michael Shannon was for me the standout, and um, barely, you know, he he barely scrapes into this tenth slot nomination. Number nine is Daniel Kaluuya for Widows. This uh, every year, like the acting categories are just so stacked and so tough to discern, and Kaluuya is incredible, and he's still only ranked ninth. Uh, this year, you know, and I think the the biggest reason is because as great as his performance is, the character doesn't give, doesn't have enough scenes. You know, he has the fantastic bowling scene, um, the 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 one take or, or the one or um, circular rap scene that he gets. You know, just just him being there at the gravesite and and in the graveyard and cemetery, all those things were were just chilling you know he plays an incredibly chilling and and glorious villain in this movie but i think if he had been given a little more time uh a little more screen time he really could have you know chewed more scenery and 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 reached even higher 
uh, with, with his performance. But even as it stands, I thought he did an exceptional job. Number eight is Nicholas Holt for The Favorite. The Favorite is just just an acting showcase. And, uh, you know, Nicholas Holt is not... Uh, prior to this, uh, you know, I thought he was just very good. I, I think he's he's just a very good actor. And, um, you know, looking at something like... Uh, the the Zomcom movie he did and I forget the name. Uh, you know, he's been around for a while. He was in Mad Max Free Road as Nux. But in the favorite, it is definitely the women's movie. You know, Weiss and, and Stone and Coleman. But in but Holt is is no slouch. He gets a lot of great lines. He gets a lot of great moments pushing Emma Stone you know, off the path uh, that one night, uh, you know, his his sort of constant finagling to to gain a little more power, a little more of the Queen's ear, uh, his, his late night liaisons with Emma Stone and trying to convince her that, you know, they can work together and, and all these types of things. I really enjoyed his performance in the movie and I thought it's a shame he's been so overlooked um, again, I, I think he's not quite as good as all the lead ladies throughout the film, but he is certainly worth uh, paying attention to because he is quite, quite exceptional. Number seven. Number seven is Russell Hornsby in The Hate You Give. We talked about this film in the screenplay category, and I, I tried to avoid talking about Russell Hornsby knowing that I would talk about him here. He has, you know, he, he's a big guy. And I think a different movie, maybe a different screenwriter, a different director, would have, you know, made his character far more stereotypical. And, you know, he's the, he's like, I was in prison. I did this, this, this. Um, you know, he, he's definitely got a bad history. But you watch this guy... And he's a little rough around the edges, definitely. But one thing you can't say about him is he doesn't know what world he's living in. He knows where he is. You know, he knows exactly what's happening. He knows what to do in each situation. And he makes the most out of it. He's a great father to these kids. Um, you know, he makes mistakes just like any other parent will. But... The, the scene where he lines up the kids on the lawn, I I thought was brilliant. It, it was fantastic. You know, Manla Stenberg and, and the rest of the kids all do a great job. And even, and, and Russell Hornsby is just on fire. And you can feel the passion. And, and to, if, if you told me that, you know, he was very much the same person the person in real life that he played in this movie I would I would completely buy that because I think there's a very decent chance that that's true but he's just he's fire and brimstone and not without his vulnerable moments but he is just a very constantly consistently um you know I can I'm gonna take care of this I'm gonna do this I'm gonna handle this kind of care kind of guy and um it 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 won me over. 
he won me over in that in that sense. So number seven, the hate you give Russell Hornsby. Number six is the other actor in the favorite, um, Rachel Weiss. Rachel Weiss, uh, number six. She's just. Uh, it's so fun. That movie is so fun to watch and see these brilliant performances play against each other. The witty, caustic dialogue. Um, you know, we talked about this in screenplay. We talked about you know her her outfits and, and tactile effects. Rachel Weisz gives uh, kind of embodies this. It's it's kind of bittersweet because when you kind of get when you get to the end of the movie and you realize you know what's been at stake and and what's being given and taken and offered between Stone and Vice's characters, you come to understand Vice so much more, and I think she does a great job of playing up this these final moments of the film and showing these other layers that you didn't really understand were there until you got to that point. And, and you know, it's things like that that push her over, you know, Nicholas Holt in this movie, um, push her over uh, Emma Stone in this movie, which Emma Stone, in my opinion, was a lead. Rachel Weiss is very close to being a lead, uh, but I would, I did end up sliding her into supporting because I think the film is primarily told from Emma Stone's perspective, and the film is primarily about um, Stone and Vice's relationship to Coleman. So I ended up giving Coleman and Stone lead status in this movie. Uh, but man, I I just think Vice puts on puts on a show, and it is the kind of movie where you just. Everyone is chewing the scenery, and it's beautiful scenery. It's beautiful scenery. Number five. Number five is from Can You Ever Forgive Me, Russell Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant. As as Jack Hawk, who is delightful, um, sarcastic, sardonic. Uh, he's... He and Melissa McCarthy are one of the best duos of the year, uh, romantic or otherwise, and a lot. And I think Richard E. Grant is is the exception, exceptional one of the pair. He is just so fun, so excitable. You know, watching him take care of Melissa McCarthy's apartment when she's gone, you know, those moments are hilarious. Every conversation that the two share is de- is delicious and f- just just enjoyable and fun to to witness. He really does. Um, he he just he has such a big presence and persona throughout this film, and it's almost it's it's impossible not to enjoy watching him. And and I certainly did. Uh, so number five, Richard E. Grant. Number four, someone who I think uh, deserved so much more credit and respect throughout this award season, Josh Hamilton for Eighth Grade. This is clearly the Bo Burnham, Elsie Fisher movie. Uh, you know, it's their show. They're the ones, um, you know, get doing doing all the big work and press and stuff. Josh Hamilton 
has slowly and and quietly become one of my favorite actors. And as the dad in eighth grade, he is just pitch perfect. He manages to be fun and snarky and sarcastic in a very, you know, dad humor kind of way. Um, I mentioned the banana scene. He's great in the banana scene. I mentioned the fireside chat. He's unbelievable in that scene. It breaks your heart to listen to him. You know, he cares so much about his daughter. He loves her so unconditionally. And everything he says in that conversation, I think every kid wants to hear whether they would know it or not. And the way he delivers it, it, it it's it's just, it, it melts me. It melts me every time. You know, seeing him creep on Elsie Fisher at the mall and, and then his subsequent, you know, sort of hangdog, sad face look at or dejected um, appearance at, at being discovered. So, so wonderful to see that. I just loved it. Loved it from front to back. I thought he did an incredible job. Number three, the highest ranking female on this list of the two. Uh, notice eight to two in favor of male performances in the supporting category this year. Uh, men men did a great job in, in as supporting performances. Uh, I mean, so do the women, but I, I, there were a lot more noticeable male performances for me in this category. Uh, number three, however, is Elizabeth Debicki from Widows. Another performance that has been criminally under rated uh, all award season and Elizabeth Debicki has was relatively new to the, to the scene she was in the tale um as I which I talked about a little earlier and in widows she is this so this abused wife of um oh what's her name he plays the Punisher, and he was in The Walking Dead. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, anyway, she's his wife, and she goes from being this abused woman who, you know, takes everything and and just d- doesn't seem to have much of a individual will, individual drive to to sort of own who she is. To by the end of the movie, being this this uncompromising. Uh, and I say this with like all the, you know, all you know, just just this powerful woman who who, you know, the the relationship she develops with Lucas Haas is is just she's she's in control and she's finally not going to take any shit from people anymore. She's resentful of how Viola Davis kind of talks down to her at you know early on and she develops a bond with these other women and I, I thought her arc in the film uh, was one of the best ones in the movie uh, maybe better than Viola Davis's if I'm being quite clear quite honest but I just I thought she does a fantastic job and um, totally earned uh, every 
accolades she got and, and, and so many more. I, I'm very, very impressed by her in this film. Runner up. Runner up. So we're left with Stephen Yen in Burning and Michael B. Jordan in Black Panther. Both of these actors kind of are the heart and soul of their film, which for both of them is kind of strange because they are both essentially villains in their movies. But the runner-up this year for Best Supporting Performance is Stephen Yen in Burning. He enters the film maybe 40 minutes into it, 35 to 40 minutes into it, uh, when Jaime, I think Jaime, uh, returns from Africa with Stephen Yen. And, and all of a sudden, we're just constantly... Uh, it's to- so tough to talk about this movie. You know, I mentioned it in the score. The score is great. Stephen Yen is awesome. He He's this upper-class guy. He's this cool cat who, throughout the film, fluctuates between being... Uh, just kind of a the the third point on a love triangle to this sadistic killer, and you're never sure until the end. And even at the end, it's left up for debate which of those two things he's closer to. And I think a lot of the ways to read this film imply one of them, and and I I support that that side of it, but. It's, it's a testament to not only the writing of the film and, and the, the way it's constructed and shot and made, but also to Stephen Yen's performance that he's able to convincingly play a character who is both somewhat tame and just kind of eccentric and uh, on the surface level seems to be this not harmless, but uh, just... This this guy who who doesn't seem to have like a care he he doesn't you know his, his relationship uh, with the other two principal characters in the film is one of at times you know fascination at times derision you know he he looks at uh, I'm never gonna remember gotta pull up these names here because it's killing me. His relationship with Jung Su and Jaime. I got Jaime right. Uh, he plays Ben, and his relationship with Jung Su is one of the most interesting relationships this year. Seeing him unable to just kind of treat Jung Su as an equal ever, he's never able to do it. And I never even actually got the sense that he wanted to. He, he looks down on Jiangsu. He looks down on Jaime. But at least with Jaime, he's able to give her a little bit more uh, respect, a little bit more attention, maybe is the better term. And that, in turn, is what creates this gulf between Ben and Jiangsu. And Steven Yen plays that up so well. We get to the end of the film and this exchange between Ben and Jung Su takes place where Ben is just flabbergasted by what's happening because 
never in a million years did he think Jiang Su was capable of, you know, asserting himself, of of being this, uh, of taking up over, uh, taking control of of the dynamic between the two of them, of rising above his station in life, and it it, it really comes across so. So well, I I loved it so much. I love all three performances. Uh, Steven Yens is the one that stuck out with to me the most, though, and I think he does an incredible job. Which means, best supporting performance this year goes to Michael B. Jordan for Black Panther. My favorite villain out in all the MCU, hands down, Michael B. Jordan is. He he steps onto the frame, and he controls it. He, which far more than rightful king T'Challa, uh, Killmonger has a swagger. He has uh, this this great confidence in his in who he is, in what he wants, in what he knows he deserves. And on top of that, his ideology isn't ridiculous. It isn't wrong. He he wants to free people from oppression. He wants to 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 create. Uh, he wants a world where you know slaves and and people who aren't slaves in name but slaves in society uh, don't exist. And I think we all want that uh, if we have any sort of decency in our in our in ourselves. We want everyone to feel like they can achieve anything. Uh, anyone to feel like they don't have to be underneath somebody else's foot. And he definitely wants that, and that's a great want to have. But his process is a little. Um, I mean, it's it's all he knows really, which is violence and war, and that's what he's focused on. But watching him walk to the throne in that brilliant um, 180 camera tilt scene, uh, his his just unabashed, in your face, you know, get on my level type of attitude when he talks to to uh, T'Challa, his the just just how he come how he conducts himself when he brutally defeats T'Challa in one-on-one combat in front of everyone else when he destroys the 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 flower garden of in in Wakanda when he it's just every every time he he has all these great moments where he proves his competency he proves that he is able to um to own this this world despite never being there before and and whether or not he's doing it correctly is aside he is able to take control and he recognizes what for his vision at least needs to be done and i think at just that you know he gets a nomination here but probably doesn't get the win but the reason he gets the win is his final scene for me where it takes 
this hardened character and in so many movies i think you put it, put a hardened character like this at the end of of their screen in their last scene and you get this moment of vulnerability and you get this you know i i need to i i need you know the the writers the directors whoever it is has this need to show like okay he's more than just this character this guy you've known for you know the previous two hours and in this movie he does take a slight turn at the end from some so many of the things we've heard from him before but he does it in a way that feels so true to the character that doesn't undermine any of the things we saw before that doesn't feel like a little jarring his his comment, you know, he he's looking at, you know, he and T'Challa sitting at that beautiful, beautiful sunset, watch, staring out at it, and Killmonger just kind of accepting the circumstance, and the way he phrases that is is, you know, best line of the movie, type stuff, uh, best line of the franchise type stuff and uh, really brings home and full circle this character his his arc his 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 everything basically so for me best supporting performance goes to a Mr. Michael B Jordan for Black Panther and now as is customary the sixth category is best original song after i read each nomination i will play a small clip from the song uh, on its own about 30 second clip so the nominees for best original song are ashes deadpool 2 because i've been shaking i've been bending backwards till i'm broke Watching all these dreams go up in smoke Let beauty come out of ashes A cover is not the book, Mary Poppins Returns Santa. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look under the covers one discovers that the king may be a crook chapter titles are like signs and if you read between the lines you'll find your first impression was mistook for a cover is nice but a cover is not the book hearts beat loud hearts beat loud Sandra Bland, say her name, colon, the life and death of Sandra Bland. Is it bitter? Is it sweet, sweet? No, is it bland? Is it bland? Tell me, do you believe this shit? Hell, no, they keep getting away. 
And shallow, a star is born. I'm of the deep And we will start with number five, which is Sandra Bland from Say Her Name, Colin, The Life and Death of Sandra Bland. This is an HBO documentary uh, that I, th- I think it's good, uh, but I don't know. It, it doesn't, I think it's incomplete because it doesn't really come to any significant and, and tangible conclusion as a film. However, as the end title cards are playing, and the credits start, and you get this, like, end, end titles of, you know, like, for so many, all, like, data and statistics relative to Sandra's death, this song comes on, and I was just so taken, so impressed by the way this song just seems to embody the feeling in the movie of, how could this happen? How did we let this happen? How how do we move on from here? How do we go on? How do all these, you know, re- relative to all these awful, terrible police related, um, prison related, black related incidents that despite outrage and outcries and protests continue to happen left and right, how do we how do we keep going and the question in the dot in the lyrics of is it bland are we you know i interpret that as are we just numb to it does it even you know can we possibly ever come to a point where it is just meaningful where it, it will impact us where it can move us as a country, as a society, as a world, to stamp out these horrible, horrible things. And you gotta think yes, but history and, and of late has shown that maybe not. Maybe not. You know, we like to think that progress has been made. We like to think that it's maybe marginally safer for um, a black person to get pulled over in a routine traffic stop than it was 10 years ago, five years ago. But is it? Is it? Time and time and time again, the supposed perpetrators of these, these awful things you know, are suspended with pay or delegated to desk duty, relegated to desk duty with pay despite killing someone un- unnecessarily, maliciously. And this song, it is bitter. It's so bitter.
but it's for a lot of people and in a lot of parts of the world it seems like it's also become pretty bland and that's terrifying that's very very terrifying number five sandra bland number four is hearts beat loud from hearts beat loud this is a nice indie movie uh that has an incredible cast i you know watching the music video for this this song one recently just blown away this cast tony collette nick offerman kiersey clemens uh ted danson uh Blythe Danner I think uh you know just uh Sasha Lane really good cast and the song is really affecting it's 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 quiet it's it's slow and peaceful but it it has an energy to it and you feel this passion and emotion coming through it it permeates throughout the whole movie which you know this is you know the movie hearts beat loud doesn't have a huge conflict within it it doesn't general doesn't really have that much tension involved in it but the song as the song kind of plays and we hear it first played we hear it on the radio we hear it played again it just I don't know, it's it's soothing. It's so soothing. It fits the film to a T and makes me very pleased uh and and pleasantly surprised. I don't think that's what I meant. Uh I don't know. It just it's a very pleasant song and one that I I you know, still listen to, still can't get out of my head you know, half a year and, and or more later. So, number four, Hearts Beat Loud. Number three, A Cover Is Not The Book from Mary Poppins Returns. So a different song from this movie was nominated for the Oscar, uh, The Place Where Lost Things Go. And that is a suitably, you know, down song. It is sad. It is poignant in its own way. But A Cover Is Not The Book for my money, is a better song in its own right, but also more impactful uh, in in the grand scheme of the film because it take it, you know it's part of the the animated live action hybrid scene sequence. It's performed by Mary Poppins and Lin Manuel's character, the Leary, and. What they end up giving us is this incredibly extended stage performance, complete with animated penguins and pop-up books and the like, of four stories where something thought to be true is not true. You know, an assumption makes an ass out of you and me. When you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. Uh... And I think so many times that point is hammered home throughout this film, whether it's through Mary Poppins herself, whether it's through, um, oh, uh, Ben Wishaw's character uh, towards the end of the film, whether it's through the, when it, it might, it's even referring to the film itself, 
you know, I think you look at this film and it's like, oh, it's a Mary Poppins movie. It's going to play out just like Mary Poppins. And I think at times it does, definitely. But it ends up being, I think you go in with this expectation that it's going to be this sort of retread remake. And personally, I didn't feel that way about the film. I thought it does a good job of adjusting and and improving itself to keep up with the times you know it wasn't satisfied with simply being a beat for beat remake and i i enjoyed it quite a bit and i think this song is the linchpin of the themes and the linchpin of um the message you know you can't judge a book by its cover and that that applies to the characters in the movie, the story, the the movie itself, and uh, you know you're looking at someone like Colin Firth's character, who, from Ben Wishaw's point of view, is uh, one thing, and underneath the surface, he is a very very different thing. So I I really liked it. I really liked this song quite a bit. My favorite song in the movie. And uh, the one I think that does the best job of connecting the film. Number three. uh, Covers not the book. The runner-up. Best original song. I thought there was... Man, I was so set to give this film, this song, the win when it came out back back in spring. But it was not to be. The runner-up this year is Ashes from Deadpool 2. Celine Dion's... Bond song, riff-off, tribute, whatever, homage, is a powerful song. Celine Dion is incredible. Uh, the music video is great. The the v- sequence of behind it when it plays in the in the movie is glorious. You know, I you, I can heap as much praise as I want onto it. It's it's just never going to be enough. I love this song. I listen to it so much, and it, it just it embodies this sort of rebirth and and rejuvenation of aspect of Deadpool. You know, he is kind of a tough character to to understand and wrap your head around and I think he does you know he he has to build himself back up when at you know early on in the film and this song takes that and runs with it you know he has crumbled to the ground he has suffered he has lost and hurt and been in pain and now he's trying to reach back up and and be that flower that kind of pokes out of the out of the ashes. So love the song, love the performance, love Celine Dion and it works. Works for me a lot, greatly. Which means the winner and I think this comes as no surprise to anybody is uh, Stars Born and Shallow. Now, I will say, this is not my favorite pure song in the movie. My favorite song in the movie is Always Remember Us This Way. 
However, I do think Always Remember Us This Way is not nearly as consequential to the plot, the story, the narrative of the film, whereas it is undeniably, you know, you can't have this movie without Shallow, without that, you know, bringing Lady Gaga onto the stage, without having, you know, this duet, this beautiful, beautiful duet between Jackson Maine and um, Allie. Shallow is this brilliant, you know, it starts out, it's it's soft when Bradley Cooper is singing, and it builds to this, you know, speaker-pounding power ballad uh, when Lady Gaga really lets it rip. And it just, it is the movie, you know, that A Star is Born is shallow, it just is, and I think it's undeniable, I, you know, it's going to win the Oscar, and that's it, though, that's, that's all there is to it, uh, you know, shallow, number one, best original song. And we are getting to the home stretch here, we are now down to four categories, Number seven, the seventh category right now is Best Director. Best Director. And the nominees are Lee Chang Dong for Burning, Josephine Decker for Madeline's Madeline, Deborah Granick for Leave No Trace, Hirokazu Koreeda for Shoplifters, and Steve McQueen for widows five exceptional directors this was a very tough category this year and uh you know maybe the first time i have to look uh by you know i look looking at last year you know there was definitely overlap last year this year every single person i i picked in this category missed an oscar nomination all of them so uh We'll see how that ends up going. Starting with number five, uh, we have the sole nomination. Two of these movies, their only nomination was in director, uh, both five and number four. Starting with number five is Hirokazu Koreeda for Shoplifters. Foreign language film uh, that deals with a family, a poor family who are all struggling to make ends meet for everyone else. And... This is a story, this is a film that takes time to kind of get into the rhythm of itself. You know, I, first 10, 15 minutes, I I was a little, you know, lackadaisically waiting for for something significant, something, um, I don't know, something to kind of spark the film a little bit for me. And there really wasn't anything like that, which was surprising. But despite the fact that there wasn't, I slowly just became more and more invested in this family, more and more invested in their trials and tribulations, their rising and falling. And I credit that to the direction. I think the the obvious choice here would have been, okay, let's have a... I don't know, 
something tragic happened to everyone that bonds them and you know makes the audience bond with them and i don't think that happens i think it's more of just no look the audience is going to connect with these people slowly letting them live their life and and ha- what happens to them happens and i think corita did such a great job knowing how much to trust his audience and how much credit to give them uh, for just understanding these people and understanding this life that they lead. And I, I just so impressed by it. You know, it also felt like this is a, this is a movie where it's 90% one thing. And then at the, the last 10% is a different thing. And that's another huge, huge, decision to make as the director you know how long do you hold on to this this perfect world you seem to have created with this family and i think he holds on to it longer than most directors would maybe even all directors would have and it it works so well he is so successful at finally achieving this this picturesque reality and and even when things go badly they go correctly in some in some sense and when we finally do get the shift it is that much more earth-shattering that much more devastating and i i think that's so so powerful i think that's a lot to do with corita in shoplifters number four is deborah granick from leave no trace uh full disclosure uh for best lead performance category the narrow miss at number 11 is thomas and mckenzie i was so close to getting her into the top 10 and it just didn't happen for me she is incredible however best director number four is deborah granick and i think in leave no trace she creates this film that shows another incredible duo another incredible pair in uh, thomas and mckenzie and ben foster this tragic story of mckenzie's character who trusts her dad so much implicitly unconditionally trusts him and over the course of the film, learns that she doesn't have to. And not not only does she not have to trust him, but maybe she needs to not trust him. And then, just when I thought that that was the whole point, just when I thought that, like, that was it, like, growing apart from your parents, growing, you know, growing apart from the people who raise you and, and learning to live on your own and understand yourself and trust yourself... The movie throws in this final wrinkle, which was, which for me was, but it's not about not trusting them, necessarily, or at least it's not about, you know, deciding that, you know, I can trust my, I have to trust myself more than I trust them. I think it's more about, I have to live for myself and not live for them 
because so often in the first half of this movie, Mackenzie's character makes decisions that are made knowing that Ben Foster is around, knowing that her dad is with her, knowing that her dad is part of her and part of her life. And by the end of the movie, when she's given the opportunity to live outside of him, she learns that there's more to it. She learns that she's able to to kind of go off and be on her own and do other things. And so it's not about trust, I, I think. You know, it's it's there's definitely that aspect in the film, but I think the most significant element is that it's about it's about figuring out no matter how attached you are to somebody else what your life needs to be and i i love that and i think deborah granick paints that picture so beautifully and you know whether it's just the bees i love the scenes with the bees in the film that mackenzie uh goes through i is all the scenes in that sort of run down rusty old trailer park sort of area are are wonderful and I think Deborah Granick does an incredible job of, of stitching all these moments together and, and giving us this seamless transition from living in the woods to going through integration into society to running away from society and finding a new society that fits us better but that is also far more uh, acceptable by the law. And uh, I, I just, it, Deborah Granick, so good, so good. Number three is Steve McQueen in Widows. Widows. Steve McQueen, not the first time he has gotten a nomination from me. Uh, He did it previously for 12 Years a Slave. Not winning there either. In fact, coming in third that year as well. Which is a shame because he's very, very good. But again, coming up a little short here. Widows is, you know, advertised as a heist movie, a female heist movie. We got a female heist movie earlier this year called Ocean's 8. And you look at both of those films next to each other, and it's really no question as to which one is more of a heist movie, and it's Ocean's 8. Because Widows is so much more than that. What Steve McQueen injects into this film is social status is is gender politics racial politics uh so many themes and messages and just it just it is it's bursting with interpretations and um content that you can't wrap your head around it fast enough in some sense in some in some instances uh bringing together this incredible cast of women uh as well as this you know all these peripheral characters and and brian tyree henry and daniel kaluuya and colin farrell and um oh robert duvall and so on 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 you just time and time and time again throughout this film he crafts these scenes and he juxtaposes, he edits this movie beautifully to play off 
uh, Colin Farrell's rich white upper class status against, you know, Michelle Rodriguez and, and Brian Tyree Henry and Daniel Kaluuya and, and all these, and Elizabeth Debicki and, and how they're all at start of the film, you know, low status. And then we see Debicki, you know, kind of rise in that sense. And in, in her relationship with Lucas Haas, we see Viola Davis struggling to, to comprehend, you know, the loss of Liam Neeson and, and his departure from her life and now how she's going to pay for his debt because she doesn't have any money and then we see you know the the the, these women going up against the men in this movie and and the sort of way that the camera and the scenes make that an uphill battle for them we see colin farrell and in his uh political race going from that brilliant shot outside of the car where he goes from poor area of the neighborhood back to his home ta- uh home street which is like four blocks over and it's you know watching on the windshield of the car all those decisions all those shot choices all those everything about it steve mcqueen just knocks it out of the park knocks it out of the park so good so impressive um i Bring on more. Bring on more from Steve McQueen. He's he's amazing. Which brings us to the runner-up. Runner-up for Best Director is Madeline's Madeline, Josephine Decker. Uh, this might be, of all the films on this list, one of the f- least watched by, by the masses. And it's definitely a film that's not for everyone. It is very, very experimental and uh, unique. But I loved it. I think it is so creative. I think it has an incredible powerhouse performance from Helena Howard at the central center of this movie. And jo- what Josephine Decker does throughout it is play... Every single, you know, ethereal and surreal moment as both actually happening and taking place in, uh, presumably, Helena Howard's head, uh, Madeline's head. And, oh man, I was just, I don't know, I just, the, the, the structure of the film lends itself to to interpretation lends itself to following madeline's slow descent into insanity and then her subsequent rise and and giving her um giving her presence more weight giving her presence uh uh more power behind it um her monologue that she delivers to miranda july her uh, I can't remember if she's her mother or like foster mother or something, but to that effect, you know, gives this huge, brilliant, scathing, biting monologue. And I just ate that up. It was so powerful, so impactful. And all of the really, all of the um, interactions uh, between Helena Howard Miranda July or Helena Howard and uh, ooh, I'm not gonna remember who that is. 
Mm, what's her name? I gotta find it. I will find it. It is Molly Parker. Um, Madeline and Evangeline, who play who's Molly Parker, or her mom, Miranda July. It's just bringing out these emotions, bringing out these these feelings, bringing out these themes and messages and and moments through the performance of Helena Howard and subsequently through the performance of Madeline within the film in her own scenes, in her own moments in life when she's playing a turtle, when she's playing a cat, when she's reliving uh, a car ride with her mother, when she's um, on the hospital bed pretending to to give birth, when she's, you know, all these things, all these moments uh, just kind of hit from every level as uh, her character, as the actor, as the within the film. I, I just think it all fits and flows together in this ethereal, surreal movie that wants to be so much and successfully pulls it off. It's it's very impressive to me. Which means that best director this year goes to Li Chang dong for burning uh finishing third in best score finishing second best supporting performance burning finally gets a win here for director for lee cheng dong and you know kind of just everything i've already talked about with burning uh flows up the chart to to attribute to lee cheng dong as well uh similarly to the hate you give uh or no, not the hit you give. What am I? Uh, Shoplifters. Similar to Shoplifters, this is a movie that languishes in its moments and you know plays in the shallow end of the pool so long that when we finally dive into the deep end, uh, we're there for 10, 15 minutes, and it's it's just long enough to to feel like we're drowning. In what's happening, it's just long enough to give us a sense of overwhelming watching it. It's it's a powerful film with a lot to say about this, you know, the class divide between Ben and Jong Su and Hai Mi. Uh, it gives us a lot to think about about what you know whether Ben what Ben is doing and what Ben is. Um, behind uh it gives us a lot to think about the the escalation of jong su's character from timid to assertive i just on every level for me burning works so well and achieves such impressive uh cinematic experiences and moments uh you know i i just the direction in the sunset dance the direction during you know the you know every scene involving jong su looking for the cat uh, you know when he when jong su and Jaime are having sex when 
he's masturbating later on and further 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 on, you just, it, it drives home this idea that when you, when you're meeting someone new and when you're learning about who they are, what they say isn't always true. I think we all kind of know that. But on top of that, you end up with this, this, this brilliant kernel of whether or not it matters. Because I think something that I don't think I've really heard talked about with regards to this movie is, does it matter if, if Ben is, is a guilty party or an innocent party? Because the film is so obviously Jong Su's film that I think there's even the this this potential for his perception to have been warped by this sort of fateful uh, um, fateful place that it seems he's headed to. Uh, you know, relative to the aggression and violence that his dad theoretically passes on to him. You know, I think there might be something there that leads to thinking that maybe he just kind of sees that as his fate. Maybe he sees that as the end of it all, no matter what. And it wouldn't have mattered if Ben had been a completely normal guy. It wouldn't have mattered if Ben had been... Um, you know, not a higher class person, but by adding in all those layers, adding in all those elements, it gives the viewer an explanation. It gives uh, Jung Su cause to to kind of talk himself into it almost, uh, which I think I don't know. I just think that's so fascinating. It's such a wonderful movie that can be interpreted interpreted so many different ways, and uh, deserves to be interpreted a lot of ways and over a lot of long period of time i think it's exceptional and i, I credit um lee chang dong with so much of that so best director 2018 lee chang dong for burning okay Whew. we are in the final stretch, as we move on to category number eight, it's been a long one. We are we are closing in on the end. Category number eight is best lead performance, and the nominees are Christian Bale for Vice, Tony Collette for Hereditary, Olivia Coleman, The Favorite, David Diggs, Blind Spotting, Elsie Fisher. 8th grade, Claire Foy, Unsane, Helena Howard, Madeline's Madeline, Rosamund Pike, A Private War, Emma Stone, The Favorite, and Charlize Theron, Tully. And like I said with supporting performance, this is likely the last year that there are 10 nominees and best lead performance as well. You will note 
Uh, again, did not plan this, but eight to two in favor of male supporting performances, and conversely, eight to two in favor of female lead performances. Women were unstoppable this year. Uh, it's it's remarkable. It truly is. And only one man even makes the top five of this list as we get into it. So uh, let's uh, let's start with number ten. Here we go. Number ten to start out is Charlize Theron in Tully. Uh, I really enjoyed Tully. It's been a long time since I saw it. It was a you know springish, early summer movie, if I'm remembering correctly. But Charlize Theron and Mackenzie Davis in that movie, another great pair from 2018. I think just this is such a contrast from her performance in Mad Max. It is also a contrast from her performance in Monster, uh, two of her most. Uh, acclaimed performances that she'd had prior to 2018 and giving her this sort of this this stressed out mom role in Tully that has a flair uh, and and a very distinct difference to it um, once you get underneath the surface of what this film is trying to do is so different from from what I've come to expect from Throne and I think she just does such a great job of elevating this performance, elevating this movie, elevating this character, um, being super mom throughout the film, and also managing to um, come to terms with how important it is for her to not have to be super mom and just the 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 interaction she has with all the characters that aren't Mackenzie Davis in whether it's exasperated whether it's it's just uh frustration and pain and exhaustion she's just consistently um infuriated by these idiots who and and you know, just wants to raise her kids and be good with them and and treat them right, and she doesn't have enough time for it. She does not have the time for it, and I think she gives a great performance uh, in Tully. In Tully, that's my number ten. Moving on to my number nine lead performance. Number nine is Helena Howard from Madeline's Madeline. I touched on her already, and she is such a breath of fresh air in this movie. I was completely taken by her. The monologue she delivers towards the end of the film is scorching. It is it is brilliant and you know undeniably, uh, fingers crossed, just a a prediction of things to come I, I I sincerely hope but she she does an exceptional job and I, I think deserves to be credited I know she was nominated for an Indie Spirit Award and I'm so pleased that they recognized her in this movie so 
I, I love her. I love I love her in this movie. She's, you know, she's um, she's a young person. She's dealing with a lot of trauma, a lot of depression, a lot of just not fitting in into the world she wants to be in. And I think all of that comes through in a very multi-layered character who sh- we get gives us this range of being a, a real person and then the level the character she has to play uh, in her acting classes and then you know the surreal element of these characters she's just working on a lot of different levels and I think giving us that range was really rewarding from from a performance standpoint number eight is blind spotting and David Diggs and David Diggs, man, whoo, this movie, I wasn't super high on him specifically, um, in, uh, you know, watching it as, as I thought I would have been. And it's only been over, like, time and, like, rewatching clips from the film and uh, paying more attention to him. Because I felt like his facial expression was kind of frozen a lot when I first watched it. But upon reflection, upon, you know, assessment and, and, and evaluation, I came to figure, I came to understand that th- there's more to it than that. It, it's far more, um, there's a lot more going on. And having recently rewatched the final rap sequence of the film, which is uh, utterly, utterly just one of the best scenes of the year, it leaves you kind of broken and it is David Diggs in this painful pained um, devastated performance that really shows it I just man he is he is letting it all hang out there and and I, I can't you know you can't Ignore it. You cannot deny it. And I'm so impressed by him in this movie. Uh, I I think he does such an incredible job. Number seven. Kind of moving quickly through these. I realize we're pushing two and a half hours at this point. So uh, just like the Oscars. Going to try and finish without going too far over three. Uh, Number number seven uh, is Emma Stone in The Favorite. Like I said, she is a lead for me. And honestly, you know, throw a dart at the three favorite ladies. You know, all of them are exceptional. Uh, You know, I think Stone's performance is the most modern. Uh, It does feel like the one that is least conducive to the time period uh, when we see her. And I think that's the only reason I lower put her rank her lower than Coleman uh, from a from a numerical standpoint and the only reason I would put her I would rank her behind vice uh, overall but beyond that I think she does a great job the the um, sexual pleasure sequence scene I, I thought she's great uh, her interactions with Coleman her interactions with Weiss uh, anytime. Uh, interactions with Nicholas Holt when she and Vice are, are firing the gun when she's playing with the rabbits all of those are wonderful 
wonderful moments, and she's incredible in them. Number six is Elsie Fisher from eighth grade. And another newcomer, you know, similar to Helena Howard, who I, I really hope gets a greater, greater uh, career going forward. I hope she continues to act. I think she's awesome, awesome in eighth grade. And just totally embodying this scared 13-slash-14-year-old girl who is struggling with anxiety and uh, fitting in and finding friends. And, you know, Kayla is such an incredible character. And she's only as incredible as she is through Elsie Fisher's performance. You know... I, I personally don't really like the Gucci that she does in her videos, but I can't even like be upset by it when Elsie Fisher does it because she makes it feel natural. She makes it, even if it doesn't feel natural, she makes it feel right, if that makes sense. Uh, she just reminds me of myself at her age a lot of the time. The way she interacts with other people, with older kids, with kids her own age, when she has that date. Oh my goodness. All of it. Every single side of it. Perfect. So great. Number five. The highest ranking male in the best lead performance chart is Christian Bale in, in Vice as Dick Cheney. Uh, controversial move. Maybe. Movie, I mean, rather. Maybe. Uh, I think it's fine. I think it's half decent. Uh, I gave it a 62, so, you know, slightly above average. We've seen a, a lot of... Uh, there's one... Uh, let me see, make sure this is true. There's one, you know, more of a biopic type of performance ahead of this one. Uh, if you don't really include Olivia Coleman that I think gets it a little bit better than Christian Bale does, but undeniably, like, he's just Dick Cheney, you know? He could stop acting, you know, maintain the look and makeup and and appearance that he has in this movie and, like, get a new job as a Cheney impersonator, and it wouldn't even be an impersonation because he literally is Cheney and he takes his entire identity away from the real person and it just it's insane. Christian Bale like what what can you say like what an impre- incredible performance and I'm so glad it got noticed. I really wish he would beat the shit out of Rami Malek at the Oscars for the win. Not literally and physically but just from a voting standpoint and uh it's a shame it doesn't look like that's going to happen but man so so, geez he just he just is dick cheney he he is that man i have seen that guy in in documentaries i've seen him on tv Uh, it's the same person They, they they cast dick cheney in this movie and they're trying to tell us that it was Christian Bale. That's what it feels like. I'm so, so, it's crazy. It's so crazy. Number four is The Favorite. Number four is The Favorite. Uh, Olivia Coleman. Number four. She is, 
you know, she is one of the hot top contenders for Best Actress this year at the Oscars. I agree. I think she does an incredible job. She deserves to be a lead. But I think at the same time, uh, she's just so good at these swinging moods. She is so good at, in one scene, being calculated cold and and harsh. And then the next scene, she's in a mud bath and she's, you know, five years old. She's just a kid. And then two seconds later, she's screaming at a help at the help to you know to to stop looking at her and then she's accepting that she's a looks like a like you know she goes through her character you know changes on a dime whether it's faking passing out in front of uh, the rest of the senate or whatever they're called uh, her advisors uh, just, she, she's able to balance so many different bizarre emotional shifts and it's it's really fascinating to watch that happen and I, I, I really enjoyed uh, Olivia Coleman doing it number three is Rosamund Pike in a private war uh, so this is the highest ranking biopic performance real life character being portrayed and man, um, Rosamund Pike puts on the hair, might be a wig, uh, the voice, the eye patch, and uh, she is just, I thought I would be annoyed by the voice, I wasn't, she plays it so beautifully, you know, this is the same woman that did, you know, Gone Girl, and she was incredible in Gone Girl, uh, she returns here in a private war, a movie that unfortunately not a lot of people saw, but she is brilliant in it. Uh, she is, it's a physical performance because it has to be. She is, you know, a, a, um, a field reporter during, you know, terrorism and war and conflict and all that kind of stuff. She is toe to toe with, um, a ton of people that have weapons. She is risking her life. She is putting herself in this incredibly dangerous position and comes out looking like a hero. And Rosamund Pike hits every single beat that needs to be hit. She affects the perfect voice. She looks the part. She uh, she, she, her, her interaction with a, even, even, you know, Jamie Dornan, uh, for all the hate he gets for being in the Fifty Shades movies, um, is fine in this movie, ultimately, but, I mean, even just, like, being next to her, it felt like his performance was elevated, and, you know, that is, you know, the true mark of someone who's great, like, they, they bring out greatness in others, and I think Rosamund Pike is exceptional. I loved her in Hostiles. I loved her in Gone Girl, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She's great in everything. And uh, this year, it's a private war. I'm a huge fan. I loved her in it. Number two, the runner-up this year. It came down to Claire Foy and Tony Collette. And, uh, man, uh, I... I 
even now I'm I'm still hesitant. But the runner-up this year for best lead performance is Tony Collette in Hereditary. Her emotion, her anger, her sadness, the tears streaming down her face, um, her scenes with Alex Wolf, who was also exceptional in this film, are undeniably brilliant. She is a, a, a literal rage monster through much of this film. And watching her unravel, you know, the mysteries at play, watching her um, go deeper and deeper and deeper into the psyche of this character as the film progresses is terrifying in a lot of ways. It's, it's, it's really painful and it's, it's something that just deserves attention. You know, she commands that your eyes be trained to her when she's on the screen and she's suitably scary, um, thrilling and overwhelming you know you look at that dinner table scene you look at when she wakes up alex in the middle of the or whatever his name is in the whatever the character name is when he wakes up alex wolf's character in the middle of the night um just sitting in the car doing nothing her interactions with uh is it margot martindale man it's been a long time since i saw this movie i wanted to rewatch it and i did not find the time Leave it's Margaret Martindale. We're gonna figure it out. And Dowd. Uh, and Dowd, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, her interactions with and Dowd are pseudo are, are equally as as strange and per- pitch and just perfect. She she deserved an Oscar nomination and uh, just didn't didn't quite get there didn't quite get there so that means that my best lead performance from a movie that almost no one saw is claire foy in unsane steven soderbergh's iphone film i just i for me it it was everything i wanted it to be and then some it was claire foy strung out you know, movies like Unsane, where the main character is put in a situation where no one believes them, where we, the audience, know the truth, and yet um, telling the truth doesn't allow you to get out of the situation you're in. They those, those, those types of movies infuriate me beyond reproach. They are so, so frustrating that I just, I want to rip my hair out because it's, it's so impossible to watch them and enjoy them and unsane is just that that's all that the movie is and somehow claire foy's performance allowed me to enjoy this movie i don't know what happened somehow you know this movie came out in the spring 
her performance survived all the way here and it, it just it ends up being everything in this movie it ends up being you know uh, the linchpin you know and I, I say that about a couple things but Claire Foy goes crazy the, ca the, the camera work with the iPhone Stoderbergh's direction the writing all of it facilitate her this is her movie she is in every scene she uh, sees things that other people do not. She's interacting with all these characters who believe her, don't believe her, think she's crazy, sane. Um, and she has to come to terms with it. She also has to wrestle with her own sanity and, and make sure that she's not mistakenly actually crazy. And all the all that is is tough tough to overcome, tough to reconcile, tough to rationalize and realize and understand. It's 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 all it's all difficult. It's all a struggle. And Claire Foy knocks it out of the park, kills it, crushes it. So, best lead performance, Claire Foy in Unsane. All right, we are moving on to the penultimate category, best scene. That is the best scene in 2018. The knees for best scene are. Oh, wait, okay. Nominees for best scene are The Dinner Table, Hereditary. Fireside Chat, 8th Grade. Monologue and follow-through, Madeline's Madeline. Rap Climax, Blind Spotting. And Sunset Dance, Burning. <sighs> okay. Um, this is always... My favorite uh, category, my my least favorite category. There are so many scenes every year that deserve a spot on this list. So many ones that missed this year that um, I wish I could have included. The ending of Infinity War. That wasn't my favorite movie, but I can't deny that that ending was very, very memorable, very, very impactful. The leap of faith moment in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, uh, uh, there, <clears throat> um, there are moments in Minding the Gap I wish I could have included in this list. Widows, the shot outside the car in Widows was brilliant. Uh, Black Panther has a ton of moments I, I would have loved to include. Um, a Star is Born, A Quiet Place, American Animals, the hate you give. Leave no trace. If Beale Street could talk, can you ever forgive me? First man landing on the moon. There are a lot every year. 
there are a lot. And this year, the five are pretty uh, pretty emotional, if I'm being honest. There's usually one or two kind of more of an more action-y, comedic moments. But uh, not this year. <laughs> no. All emotional, sad moments this year. Number five. Madeline's Madeline uh, monologue and follow-through. Molly Parker. Molly Parker's character tasks uh, Helena Howard uh, to deliver a monologue. As if she was her mother, Miranda July, and if as if she was talking to herself. Or as if her mother was talking to her as her mother, if that makes sense. And... It's about four minutes at first. Uh, She slowly, slowly builds up from some mundane stuff. Um, What sweater should I wear? The one with floral or the one with floral? She's making fun of her. She's making a joke, you know, and and it's good natured. It's stuff that, uh, stuff that I think we all know we do. Where you know you call you, you call somebody out on it and like oh yeah yeah I know I, I get that way I do that sometimes and even even Madeline is smiling when she's delivering this monologue at first and it slowly turns it becomes you know why won't you eat anything I made pancakes you can't go to rehearsal if you don't eat a fucking pancake and it gets emotional it gets intense it gets strong there's this brief respite after that where i took down some of the dialogue she says when you were just a little baby i stroked your head so soft i said to myself this baby she's so perfect she's gonna be so strong and look at you now you are sick you are so sick and she's angry she's frustrated she's upset this is how she view thinks that her mom looks at her and then the scene shifts The anger disappears, still playing her mother, still playing Miranda July. She cowers, calling out, no, Madeline. Madeline, stop. Please, Madeline, no, stop, don't. And she looks to Madeline's brother, who's not there. She looks to him to help her, and she can't do it. He's not there. He can't do it. And... It replays a scene from earlier in the movie that we're pretty sure it happened, but we'd never had any full-out explicit confirmation that it took place. And it's confirmed in this moment, in the middle of this enactment. She's screaming, she's crying, she's in tears, she's fallen to the ground, she's sitting on the ground. Miranda July leaves. She's watching this. She leaves. She cannot take it. She cannot relive this moment. She cannot relive this emotion. And Helena Howard, Madeline, is just screaming. And then she stops. And then all the emotion falls away. She wipes the tear off of her cheek. And she's just 
hollow, hollow. What follows is Molly Parker applauding, cheering, praising. Everyone else around, everyone in the acting troupe staring, coming to the realization that everything has been about Madeline, that Molly Parker really only cares about Madeline, that this entire performance they're putting on is about Madeline. And this is the movie. This is Madeline's Madeline. This is her looking at herself. She has a line earlier in the movie that's saying something to the effect of, you don't know myself. This is her visual representation, her uh, interpretation of how her mother sees her, how she ultimately thinks everyone else looks at her. And it's devastating. Number four is the final rap from Blind Spotting. I talked about this when I talked about Blind Spotting before, but it is no less powerful, no less potent, no less impactful. Tiffany Diggs stumbles upon the cop that killed a black man that David Diggs watched, that David Diggs saw happen. He picks up the man's gun, holds him at gunpoint. His partner, his moving partner, Rafael Casal, character, finds them, doesn't know what to do. And then he starts rapping. This scene is on YouTube. You can check it out. It's incredibly powerful. Uh, he He... It's so well written because most of it feels like, yeah, this could be freestyle. Yeah, he could be pulling this off at the top of his head. And I believe that he could be. David Diggs' performance giving us everything, every ounce of energy and emotion that he has inside of him. Lashing out at this this man who, who took the life of a boy, a 26-year-old boy who, who had nothing who, who, who was in no position to, to hurt anyone, who did not deserve to be treated that way. This cop who had nothing done to him, who was moving because he cannot bear to stay in this place where everyone hates him, where everyone judges him. The line that I, I, I quoted this line last time when I talked about it, I'll quote it again here. David Diggs is up in his face, gun right there, right so close so close closer than it was when the cop shot the black man and he says um, it's not too hard to figure that you probably never felt the pressures of an n-word well, you know what, I ain't never felt the pressures of a trigger He hesitates for a second, screams, letting out his anguish, his anger, his rage, and then tosses aside the gun, lets it go. He can't. And he says, tells him, you know what the difference between you and I are? I'm not a killer. He walks off, and, and, and just the cherry on top of this scene, the cop Tears streaming down his face, scared more than he ever probably has been in his entire life, 
turns to Raphael Cassell, who is still standing there, shocked, not knowing what to do, and he says, I didn't mean to. Cassell's character casts his eyes down, looks up, turns to the camera. To the camera, looking at us, the viewer, looking at us, the country, the world, all cops, all white people, everyone who has ever had a thought about an issue like this. And he says, are you sure? He says, are you sure? And he turns away. It's devastating. It's, they all are. It's painful to watch. It's difficult to see. Because not only is the moment, the, the, the depiction of it painful and difficult, but the reality of the situation is painful and difficult. That look into the camera, it gets me every time. It gets me every time. Number three is the dinner table in Hereditary. Tony Collette and and uh, Alex Wolf. Alex, uh, uh, the daughter has already died. Alex's sister, Tony Collette's daughter, has died relatively recently, and finally, things boil over. That wolf, you know, asks her, hey, uh, something you want to say? You look like you got something you want to say. And Tony Collette won't, you know, doesn't think she has anything, doesn't want to say anything, just not worth saying anything to someone who's going to sneer at her. And she's just so sad. So sad that... A broken family, a separated, segregated, dis... dis, uh, A family split up had a unifying trauma that could not bring them together. Even the most awful thing, even the slimmest of silver linings could not be found in this trauma. It is painful she 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 accuses her son you couldn't even say i'm sorry you couldn't even admit a single thing about what happened it sucks i wish i could take this pain away from you i wish i could but i can't she has her tirade and one of my favorite lines she says you just, I could do, I could scream and yell, and you just sit there with that fucking face on your face. She yells, she screams, she sits back down. Alex Wolf. I what I what I love that Ari Aster does in this this scene. I think a lot of directors would have chosen just track Tony Collette through the entire tirade, through the entire time. But he gives us a lot of a lot of beats, a lot of frames to look at Alex Wolf's face, to look at the tears on his 
face, to look at the sleeplessness under his eyes, to watch him react as she yells at him and yells at them, at the at this house, at this world. And finally, after a pause, after a moment, he says, um, you can't admit anything either. She didn't want to go to that party. Why did she go to that party, Mom? And you can see the fire in Tony Collette's eyes as Gabriel Burns steps in and says, No, I am shutting this down. Oh, man. What a scene. What a powerful scene. Runner-up for best scene is the sunset dance. In burning, uh, the only scene that uh, has no dialogue of the five. Um, Jaime dancing in the sunlight. Ben and Jung Soo sitting on the porch watching. She dances topless as a silhouette. It is beautiful. It is blissful. It is it is ethereal. It is serene. And, and 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 yet it, it it still slowly slowly unravels. It it, it she's taking off her clothes. She makes a butterfly with her hands, a bird flapping above her. She stretches, she bends over. She has a smile on her face as she makes these motions with her arms, with her hands. And she turns back toward the men and her, suddenly her face isn't as joyful. And then it is again. And then it isn't. It drops. The smile drops. The frown appears on her face. She's crying. As she realizes just just what just just how this is, how things are, what is happening. She's simultaneously putting on a show for them, performing for them, and it, it just it becomes this this tragic moment where almost as if she knows or or believes or thinks that this could be it. That this could be the last thing. The camera lets her leave and then slowly pushes over and scans the horizon, scans the, the dimly lit sunset fields until it pans over and rests on a greenhouse.
It hesitates on that greenhouse, keeping it in the frame, slowly pushing it to the edge, to the edge, and finally pulling off of it into the sky. It is, um, I mean, it's, it's a metaphor related to Ben and burning, light <laughs> burning down greenhouses. It is just impeccably filmed, impeccably shot, impeccably performed by um, Jaime's actress, actor. And one of the most bittersweet moments uh, I've seen. And the least sour and depressing and emotionally charged scene, I guess, of the five, but one of my favorite moments of the year. It's, it's so powerful and so evocative. Which leaves number one, the fireside chat in eighth grade, which... If you listen to my review of 8th grade, it was a very personal moment and movie for me. Um, the conversation between Elsie Fisher and Josh Hamilton starts. They are, they, he's, he's set up the fire so that she can burn um, her time capsule. He says, what was in there? And she says, nothing really. Just sort of my hopes and dreams. And he says, right, and you're burning them. And he wants to, he's been such a, he's such a good parent. He, he is willing to go along with it. This is what she wants. This is her choice. And he's okay with that. But he does make the additional effort to say, hey, I, I really hope this is a, this is a positive thing. I want this to be a good thing for you. I don't. she says it is which is a relief there's a brief lull and then she says do I make you sad and he does this thing I do this a lot when I'm asked a question he's like what and he, he obviously heard her question he knows what she said but you're just you're kind of just a little zoned out you're a little off and you need that extra, you know, you could just simply like wait for a moment and, and actually answer without needing a repetition or asking for a repetition. But you say what? Because maybe it just feels strange. It feels like a question that wouldn't have been asked. And he kind of hems and hauls a little bit. And he says, no, of course not. No, there's no way. No, not at all. And then he says, why would you think you make me sad? And her response is a thought, are, are feelings that I have felt uh, before. She says, I took down, I, I removed some of the ums and rep rep uh, needless repetitions from the dialogue, but it essentially boils down to, Sometimes I think that when I'm older, maybe I'll have a daughter of my own. Maybe, I feel like if she was like me, 
then being her mom would make me sad all the time. I love her because she's my daughter, but I think if she turned out like me, that being her mom would make me really sad. I've had that thought. I've had that thought about my parents. Disappointed in me. Looking at me and being so disappointed, so ashamed, so glad that they don't have to deal with me anymore. And that's a really dark, really dis- depressing, painful thought, mindset to be in. It's, 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 it's poisonous. It's, I can't fathom, I cannot fathom hearing that come from my kid. For someone, for, for, for a kid to think that way about themselves, for them to not only think that way, but think it so much, to believe it so much that they would willingly share that with their parent, God, that would kill me. Josh Hamilton, uh, her dad's response um, essentially came down to, to, to saying, if you grew up to have a daughter like you, if you grew up to have a daughter like you, she will make you so happy. Being your dad makes me so happy. You don't know how happy you make me. It's so easy to love you. It's so easy to be proud of you. I am so unbelievably happy that I get to be your dad. I would have killed to have this conversation when I was younger. That would have meant so much to me. Kayla hugs her dad. She she goes over and crawls into his lap. Cuz he says every he says the right thing and knowing how, what the what the right thing is to say, that is that is But it's not it's more than that. It's just feeling the right way and being able to express that feeling it's not about okay what do i say how do i say this the right the the perfect way so that she knows what i mean so she understands it's not about that it's about feeling it inside it's about it's about absolutely unconditionally loving his daughter it's about actually watching her grow up and loving every single second of that time, every single experience, cherishing the good and the bad in equal measure. And that display of affection, that that portrayal of this 
parenthood is is just top notch. It's so strong. It's so good. Um, the fi fireside chat in in eighth grade is my best scene of 2018. Which brings us to the final category of the night, the final category of today's episode, Best Picture. Okay, here we go. Best Picture. And the nominees are Black Panther, Burning, Eighth Grade, Minding the Gap, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I've talked about all these movies before in some capacity. We'll talk about... I'll try to not go too deep into them if I can avoid it. Um, especially ones I've talked about a lot, like Burning, like 8th Grade. Number five is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I, I just... It's such a strong, powerful film about acceptance, about understanding yourself, about connecting with other people. It is... A brilliant, refreshing take on the superhero genre. I cannot wait for more films from this world, this multiverse, this spider-verse. It looks great. It's got great music, great soundtrack, great score, great voice performances. Man, Jake Johnson, so close to a nomination for me in supporting. All of it was great. Number four is Black Panther. Again, another fantastic superhero movie this year. Um, Ant-Man the Wasp, Infinity War, lackluster for me. Venom, not good. But Aquaman, fine. But Black Panther, it's got issues. It's not. It's a flawed movie. I know that. We all know that. But what it means, what it represents, what it is... The relationship it has with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the relationship it has with the fans, with the audience, with the moviegoers, the, the, the characters that are just all so brilliantly realized. I just, I, I can't, it, it just, it, it works on so many levels. It has great action sequences. Great dialogue, great performances, great visuals. It's not perfect, but it's it's pretty exceptional. Number three is eighth grade. Uh, I mean, this is like my ladybird. This this is the ladybird of the year for me. It's it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of a film about such an incredible character in Kayla. Elsie Fisher is a treasure. Josh Hamilton, fine, like getting, man, he deserves so much. The fireside scene, of course, the, 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 the date that she goes on at the end, the pool, the, the banana. I love the banana scene. I think that's so amazing and so well made and so well written. I love it. I love it so much. Number two is Minding the Gap. And this is a documentary. I didn't, it's probably the thing I've, the best picture nominee I've talked about the least. Uh, it only came out in special effects, 
but the it's a case study of these three men watching them and like they're no they're not great they're not great people necessarily but they're human i think so often we need our movies and our stories to be about superhuman things you look at something like free solo it you know you think oh man how insane is it that he can climb that whole mountain without any safety net you know he is obviously a real person doing a real thing but the thing he is doing is so far removed from what the average person can do that it feels superhuman you look at somebody like rbg who has transcended the position she is in who has become so much more than a supreme court justice and that is already an incredibly incredibly difficult position to attain she's a real person but she has become more than that these men in this movie are real people that have real problems real flaws real difficulties real issues and man if i can't connect to that everyone has painful pasts traumas in their lives that they can pull from draw on and think back on some people want to push those down and suppress them some people relish and live in them on a day-to-day basis and you may not have a single trauma that looks and feels and, and acts like any of the ones that these three dudes have or their families have but you can connect what you have to what they have whether it's an abusive stepfather whether it's a dead parent whether it's a um you know just an abusive relationship that's begun at way too soon in your life dealing with a kid in your early 20s and people do it earlier than that but but just it's such a high responsibility such a high pressure responsibility learning to to come to terms with the fact that there are people out there that think abuse is is the right answer to questions to to not even questions to actions all three of these men deal with it in some way have dealt with it experienced it given it and it's sucks i feel so fortunate that i i never had to deal with that and yet it's astonishing to me how prevalent it is everywhere and this doc showcases how hard it is to to just live how hard life is I think, you know, maybe it doesn't happen to everyone by the time they're 25 or 30, 35, 40, but there's going to be a time in every person's life where just getting from one day to the next becomes a struggle. Whether that's problems at work, at home, in school, maybe you can't find a job, maybe you don't have enough money for rent, maybe you don't you can't put food on a plate, maybe you can't deal with your kids, maybe you can't you know, maybe you just lost your parents after, you know, 5 years, uh, you know, maybe you lost them to disease, maybe you lost them to accidents, maybe
you find yourself in a situation where it's not easy to get out of bed. You find yourself in a situation where food doesn't taste like anything anymore. Maybe it only lasts for a day for some of us. Maybe it lasts for years. Maybe it never goes away. And what I love about Minding the Gap is that it doesn't pretend to have answers. It doesn't try to say, yeah, you can fix this. It doesn't give everyone a redemption story either. You're not perfect. You're not great. You can be bad. People can be just bad people. Flawed. Flawed people. But the key, the key thing to always remember, a flawed person, a bad person is still a person. For whatever reason, if you care about that person, if you love that person, you do what you can for them. Flaws, negatives, or not. Maybe you get exasperated, maybe you have to give up at some point, and, you know, everybody's breaking point is different, but... It's not easy to to move on from something like that. That's why there are so many people in abusive relationships. Because even though the friendships in this movie are not necessarily abusive, the caustic, leeching nature of them operates in the same way. And uh, it really affected me and, and hit me pretty, pretty hard. Which means my 2018 best picture is burning. I've talked about it a lot. I won't go into too much detail. I have, an, I have a review episode on it, I think, somewhere. Uh, it's, like I said, it's a movie with many interpretations, with many ways to read it, with, it looks gorgeous, it's got brilliant performances, it, it, it's a stunning film, it's a slow burn for most of it, but it, it does pay off, it does reward attention and focus, it rewards, you know, appreciation, and that is so special to me. Too many movies don't reward that. And, and I, I honestly, I would say all five of these movies in my nominees uh, reward that appreciation. Uh, un, you know, unparalleled. You know, they're all, they're all great at it. But I think Burning does it just a little bit better. My favorite film, my best film of 2018 is Lee Chang Dong's Burning.
Um, all right. Whew. Uh, so, the very end, small, small statistics before we cut this off ASAP. Um, most nominations on the night, on the episode, on the year. Eighth grade and favorite both come away with six nominations. Uh, favorite went home empty-handed, no wins. Eighth grade pulls in two wins, best screenplay, best scene. Burning, next up with five nominations, t- taking home wins with picture and director. Uh, Black Panther, Spider-Verse, Widows, Madeline's Madeline, and Hereditary, all with three nominations. Black Panther, the only one winning anything, and it won two awards for supporting performance and tactile effects. Um, then you've got American Animals, Quiet Place, A Star is Born, and Unsane, all winning one award off of one nomination. Uh, with a total of thirty-two films nominated for something this year, uh, it's a pretty high number. One of the highest, um, highest uh, years. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, highest rated film for me this year that did not get a nomination uh, I believe is Incredibles 2 let me just double check that no it is Shirkers Shirkers highest rated film that did not get a nomination for me this year Shirkers is a documentary urge you to check it out I think it should still be on Netflix all the best original scenes except for Madeline's Madeline are on YouTube. Um, even if you've seen the movie, I would highly recommend checking them out again. I think they are so powerful, so so well done, and really encourage you. If you haven't seen any of the movies I listed, all of them have merit in some fashion or another. I highly recommend all of them. Uh, and that's it. Um, head, head, check out circleoffilm.com, Circle of Film Awards page. Uh, Sometime this weekend, I will update that to uh, change the statistics. Now that uh, another year, ha- another year's awards have gone by, um, I don't believe, giving myself a cursory look here, that anyone that there's still been anybody to get two wins um, at all. And uh, looking down the list here, really doesn't seem that way. Nope. Looks like we are still without somebody winning twice for anything across any uh, categories. Uh, so I'm interested to see, you know, where the nomination leaders change. Uh, this is the second year that a foreign language film has won Best Picture. Handmaiden won it back in 2016. Um, it's just... Uh, I don't know. I really enjoy this a lot. And uh, again, so in. Uh, oh, I totally forgot and uh, almost finished without this. So, before I forget, the honorary oversights, honorary oversights, films that came out in a year that I've already done a Circle of Film Award episode for, but that I have seen after doing that episode uh, that I would have added in. Uh, three films this year make that cut. 
The first is 2017's Anna and the Apocalypse. Kind of didn't get a theatrical release until 2018, but as far for my purposes, it's a 2017 film. Definitely would have taken a Best uh, Original Song nomination slot. Not sure if it would have won or if it would have gotten a second, but definitely at least one. The second is 2017's Beast uh, for Best Lead Performance from... Oh, what's her name? Oh, I love her too. Twenty seventeen beast. It is Jesse Buckley. She is incredible in this movie. She would have easily slotted into best performance, lead performance that year. Uh, and that's it. Uh, I wasn't sure how many there were going to be. There are two: Anna and the Apocalypse and Beast. Those are uh, my honorary oversights for twenty. 18 and that's it that is it that is the it that is that is finally it thank you so much for listening to this episode i really appreciate it It means a lot i i know they're always so long but there's so much to talk about there is just so much to talk about uh we're closing in on three and a half hours uh maybe more than that after it's been edited we'll see uh that's it thank you head over to circleoffilm.com follow me uh circle of film at Circle of Film, Circle of Film on Letterboxd, Circle of Film at gmail.com on email, patreon.com slash Circle of Film. Check that out. L- l- like, uh, rate and review and subscribe on iTunes, all those things. Thank you so much. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell. I'll be the same tonight. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fades from view. So long, farewell. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.